BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I can remember as a kid, uh, you know, I was such a fan. I would geek out on my favorite players. You probably did as a kid as well. Uh, maybe you still do. But I, but Joe Montana was my guy. It was a sweet spot for me. I was like 11 years old when the Niners went to the Super Bowl, played the Bengals, Pontiac, Silverdome. Freezing cold day, Super Bowl 16. Golden Joe came running out of the tunnel, Niners won. Like, if you would have asked me, hey, 11-year-old Konzano, you know, who do you want at your birthday party? Special guest. I would have said Golden Joe, permanent quarterback. We'll play some football, get the Nerf ball out. Oh, I'll bet he could throw a spiral with that Nerf ball, although most people can't. But years later, when I became a sports writer, graduate college, get my first job, I'm dispatched to the 49ers training camp in Rockland, California. We, Rockland, California, have never been there. It's uh, north east, really, of the Bay Area. You're talking about warm part of the state of California in the summer months. You're talking about 100 degrees, dry heat. It's a perfect place for a training camp. And the Niners, that's where they held their training camp. And I can remember being dispatched there like a 25-year-old me, my first job at my first newspaper, and I'm sent to Niners training camp just to, uh, you know, going to spend a day or two there and write some stories. And this was long after Joe Montana had retired. But he was still around the Niners organization because he was Joe Montana. And I can remember um, at the time going out and seeing practice in the morning, and then they had uh, lunch at, the, you know, they were working at, you know, some small college there in Rockland, they had lunch available to the media and the players at lunchtime. And, oh, by the way, the players would dine in the same dining hall that the media dined in. It's really weird. It would never happen today. Like, this is one of these things where they thought, oh, this would be good for the players to be around media members. Can you imagine that in today's world? Hey, what about your contract? You get stuff like that. But I can remember getting into the dining hall, and it was uh, cafeteria-style uh, you know, food presentation, you'd you'd get a tray and then you'd go and you'd get mashed potatoes or you might get chicken and you might get broccoli and then you'd go get a soda and then you'd sit down somewhere next to some sports writer or maybe some player would even come sit down next to you. I can remember Harris Barton, for, former uh, 49er offensive tackle, sitting down, giant heaping plate of chicken and broccoli and and I can remember Bubba Paris who was on those Niner teams, giant offensive lineman. But the guy that got me was Golden Joe. Joe Montana, he was there just hanging out at training camp, and I, I'll never forget this. I was in line for the soda machine holding my plastic cup and, uh, you know, about two or three people in front of me, and here comes Joe Montana sauntering up to the soda machine. And uh, he uh, doesn't get in line like everyone else. He cuts in line. And my heart dropped, and I went, oh, Joe Montana's a cutter? Joe Montana, the guy that I idolized growing up, isn't going to wait his turn in line? Like, in that moment, my sports hero went from sports hero 
into, um, you know, he was just another person. It's a guy who's going to cut in line. That was kind of rude. There was a bunch of people waiting, Golden Joe. But I guess if you're Joe Montana, you don't wait in line for a soda. Okay, you just go walk right up to the machine. And I lost, uh, lost some luster. The shine came off Golden Joe that day. And I went, man, maybe this media thing is going to be an eye-opener for me. Uh, Aaron Rodgers in the news today. He's been speaking out. He was on the Pat McAfee show. He said some weird stuff. He talked about the world being out to get him, how he was vilified for his stance on the pandemic. He was an anti-vaccine person. Uh, Aaron Rodgers is different. And if you think about it, like, you know, the NFL can't be all that different than the uh, reflection of society. Like, I understand, like, in an NFL locker room, you're probably going to see, uh, you know, uh, athletic individuals. You're probably going to see... Uh, by and large, people who went to college and uh, stayed in college a couple of few years at least, and then you're going to find people from all over the country, all of different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religions, uh, different upbringings, single-parent households, uh, not single-parent households. You'd see you get kind of a slice of American life. Coaches will often talk about that locker room being a melting pot, and that's one of the big challenges for coaches in the NFL and coaches in college football. Like, how do you get that thing, the locker room, moving in one direction. bunch of people with their own agendas, with their own motivations. How do you get them to buy in and understand what they're part of? But, Aaron, you know, so Aaron Rodgers, um, probably not all that different than somebody you know who feels like they were alienated, they were vilified for their stance on the pandemic. I mean, he went, like, kind of buck crazy talking about it. He's also talking about staying in, uh, staying in Green Bay. He did talk about his contract on the Pat McAfee show. Listen to this. Oh, I'm going somewhere with this. I don't think there'd be a scenario where I'd come back and that would be the number. I think it, it would definitely, definitely things would have to shift. Hmm. Got it. I mean, we'll see what we just did. Oh, yeah. Un, unpeeling the onion here. For Why sure. do you think that? Well, I just don't think it's, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of teams because of COVID that are strapped. And you're seeing us a lot of different contracts. They're pushing more money out uh, in in, uh, in deals. They're creating you know certain kind of void years uh, to allow for the uh, an easier cap hit. So there you know there would have to be some adjustments for sure. He's talking about whether or not he stays in Green Bay. The 60 million dollars they would have to pay to him would have to be shifted around. So here's my question uh, for the room and for you, the listener. You know, I talked about Joe Montana. I would have loved at 11 years old to have him at my birthday party. I'm not so sure anymore. You know, he cut in line at the uh, at the uh, chow hall at uh, training camp. Years later, when we tried to get him on this radio show, he yelled at our producer and said, don't call my house. He was kind of rude about it. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, I got to thinking about Aaron Rodgers. He's a different cat. He's outside the box. You might even say he's weird, but he's different. Would Aaron Rodgers be a good person to have at a cocktail party we're throwing? Like, and who's who else is getting invited if we're going to do this in the sports world? Like, who are we inviting to the most interesting dinner party that you could possibly put together when you talk about sports? Like, I'll bring Aaron Rodgers into the room, but I'm not going to bring him into the room unchecked. I'll bring in somebody else. I'll bring Charles Barkley to keep him company. You know, Char- Charles Barkley might be... Uh, might be a fun individual to have there. How about Bobby Hurley, the Arizona State basketball coach? I'll bring Bobby Hurley in. Uh, Bobby Hurley, fascinating to me. 
Who else is coming in the room? Shannon Sharp? Uh, Jim Nance? You know, who else are you bringing into the room? How about Tom Brady? Um, I, I think it would be a really fascinating exercise to put together the perfect dinner party. Now, it could have a Pac-12 flavor. We could say, who do you want in the Pac-12? And I could say, I want Larry Scott in the room. I want George Klyovkov in the room, the past commissioner, the current commissioner. Give me Merton Hanks so I can talk some NFL football with him, uh, the uh, deputy commissioner in the Pac-12 conference. Uh, I would probably take uh, somebody like Mick Cronin, the UCLA coach, and maybe uh, Dana Altman and uh, Kelly Graves. And uh, how about Scott Ruick and uh, Jonathan Smith? And uh, who else would we get into this party? Who do you want at your perfect dinner party? You're putting it together. 503-417-7575. Anybody in the sports world, who's coming to the dinner party? Who should be on the guest list? Who popped into your mind as I said that? Because I'm bringing Charles Barkley. I'm, I'm, I have mixed feelings about Aaron Rodgers because it could get weird with Aaron Rodgers, or he could be the most interesting thing ever. Like if, if somebody's going to check him, like if Charles Barkley's going to tell him, hey, stop, you know? Like for any, anybody who's ever been to one of these, uh, you know, get-togethers understands that there's a certain mix in the room that you want. Who's coming to the dinner party? Steven, who's coming to the dinner party? My initial thought was Barkley, just like you said. He, he was my first thought because I think he could be entertaining um, but also be, you know, tell some good stories as well, and that's what we want. For Aaron Rodgers, I don't want him there. I feel like he would be really annoying to me, and I would get I'd get sick of him real quick. So for Rodgers, it would be a hard pass. Um, another guy I thought of was uh, you know a guy like Coach K, but I also think that he could be annoying as well, like because he's been through so many stories and things like that. And Michael Jordan, same thing, a lot of stories, but I don't know how nice he actually would be. So you know, I'm really struggling with this because I'm afraid that a lot of these guys won't be very nice to me. And so that that is my problem. Ah. They're, they're going to be annoying and not nice. So I think I think Barkley is the per, like the perfect combo of that. And then you know you talk about Shannon Sharp or you talk about Skip Bayless, all these guys that scream on TV, uh, that's a hard pass for me. You can have those guys as well. I like Shannon. I don't like Stephen A. Smith and Skip. I would I would skip Skip. <laughs> but I, but Shannon Sharp, you know, he played in the NFL. He's outspoken. I like Shannon. Like, you know, can you see he and Charles Barkley kind of Holding, being tent poles in this dinner party for like a local flair. I would want a guy like Rasheed Wallace. I think that would be mm. really fun to hear some of the stories for the Jailblazers uh, that era. Like how crazy was it actually? So um, I think Rasheed would be on my list. Barkley would be on my list for sure, and I don't think of some other ones. All right, here's Charles Barkley talking about his drinking habits during the quarantine. For me, man, it's been a, a great reboot on my life. You know, the first thing I said to me, if I sit down by myself, I said, Chuck, this is going to be really dangerous for you. You guys know I like to drink. The first <laughs> thing I said was, I'm only going to drink on on the weekend. I only drink on Friday and Saturday. Uh, I haven't had a drink during a day of the week in probably it's been like six weeks now. Well, Friday is a day of a week. So really, Friday's the weekend, fool. No, Saturday, Sunday. No, no, no. no. Even though it's my two drinking days, instead of having (laughs) 10 vodkas and tequilas, I'm just going to have three or four. So Friday and Saturday, I do about two or three drinks, and I'm good. Between drinking and Diet Cokes and not working out, this could have been like crazy. I could be big as Shaq when I came back. And uh, sure, I it. didn't want that that's to happen. <laughs> I love that. How about Charles Barkley and Bill Walton as part of the dinner party? But there, but that would be too much talking, don't you think? Like, don't you think Barkley would get annoyed with Bill, and then it might turn into a problem? 
But you might have little breakouts that go on. Like, you know, uh, you know, I had a friend who suggested, how about uh, Deion Sanders, uh, Coach Prime? You get Co- Coach Prime in the room. You get Bill Walton in the room. You get Charles Barkley in the room. Um, I'm actually going to bring Aaron Rodgers into the party. At least I'm thinking about it and thinking hard about it. But I'm bringing him in knowing that if he starts spouting nonsense, that Charles and some others are going to call him on it. And it could get weird. Like somebody could go home at my dinner party. What Peter you, Sampson. All right, go ahead. Oh, go I was say, what, what, one more that I thought of was Nick Saban. I, you know, I think Nick Saban, <laughs> because he's you know such a good big personality, but at the same time he's very quiet. He can be kind of quiet, but I think in that setting, in a dinner party, he might he might you know spout off a little bit. I think it'd be nice. Hey, Nick Saban, uh, are you going to get on social media? Well, nobody has, and I don't know what it would look like if I did. I mean, you guys keep wanting to ask hypothetical questions today. Um, I've never been big with social media. Uh, it takes a lot of time. Uh, you got to respond to a lot of things. Uh, I've tried to focus on, you know, two things here: uh, how do we develop our players? And how do we bring players to our team? You know, I think it might be interesting to have Saban there because as all the, you know, uh, as my friend uh, Heavy D says, uh, after the tomfoolery and ballyhoo is over, you get down to uh, talking about, like, serious stuff. Like, Nick Saban could, you know, might learn something. Like, the room might go quiet when Nick Saban is talking about his you know, doing some life coaching at the front of the room. Peter, who's at the dinner party? Yeah, it's funny that you guys mentioned Barkley because my first thought was the entire TNT postgame crew. Just they have such good chemistry. They know how to work well with each other. You know they can have fun together. You know they can debate without it getting out of control. But I do have to ask, is it alive or dead? Do they have to be alive? Uh, let's 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 keep it to people who are alive. I don't know a weekend okay. at Bernie's situation. Okay, okay. There, you know, because, I, yeah, I, some people popped into mind, but... Like if we're if we're doing like a you know all dead dinner party, <laughs> um, different different conversation. Sure, yeah, that's that's fair. So okay, so I'm not including Tony Gwynn to talk hitting, but uh, we'll say uh, <laughs> we'll say uh, we'll say Freddie Freeman to talk hitting. I want okay. Greg Greg Popovich there. That's a worldly guy mm, who I think bring is his a, wine exactly bring his wine, yeah. exactly. And then what I need is a crier when a few bottles get empty and I need someone to get emotional. So my man Dick Vermeil is going to oh. cry and hug it out at the end of the night. I like that. I, you know, you could also bring Jerry Allen into it like oh. he broke down on yesterday. So Jerry Allen plays with a lot of emotion, man. I love it. I'm not making fun of him. I love that he plays with emotion. If you missed yesterday's show, we had Jerry Allen on. We had Mike Parker on. Voice of the Ducks, Voice of the Beavers is fantastic. Grab the podcast. Punch and audio is coming up. We have Ryan Leaf. Former NFL quarterback coming up later in the show. Eric Sondheimer of the LA Times is going to talk about brawny. Does Dana Altman want that headache? I'm going to ask Sondheimer how big a headache that will be when brawny goes to college. Stay tuned. we got a great show. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Dinner parties, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's literally what every radio show, whatever television show, is aiming to do. They want to put together a cast of characters that have chemistry, and uh, you know, it looks like a fun dinner party. I think that's exactly what Ernie and Shaq and Kenny and uh, and Charles Barkley are doing uh, on their show. It's what's happening with 
Terry Bradshaw and and uh, JB and Howie Long and Jimmy. It's uh, what happens uh, on uh, every talk show, every political show, every sitcom. They're look. Everyone's looking for that synergy. Uh, when you know it, you know it. I love putting together. I love putting together dinner parties like that and events like that, and going, okay, who do we put in this room together? What's the perfect mix of people? You got to be thinking that way. Uh, we're going to play some Punch and Audio in this segment. Take one phone call, then jump right into Punch and Audio. Joe in Vancouver has a sports dinner party suggestion. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, if Aaron Rodgers has to be at this party, I need Jay Cutler there. <laughs> I also want Dennis Rodman there. <laughs> Can you, somebody's storming out, okay, if you're a party. But it won't be boring. No, not at all. Throw Joe Madden in there, too. I'm a Chicago guy, clearly. I love that. Somebody's leaving that dinner party in a huff. I can tell you that. I, I can see. Uh, I, I yeah. had thought Rodman, but I thought it would get a little too weird. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm about that. You can have weird people at your party. Yeah, but, weird. I mean, he's going to probably, I don't know. I feel like he's going to bring something weird. Like, he's, I, I don't know. He's going to undress yeah, mid-party. Like, it's yeah. going to get a little, little too he- little freaky for me. Keep your clothes on, Dennis. Nobody wants to see that. All right, let's play some punch and audio. We got the best. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Baseball is going to implement uh, some shift restrictions. Cody Bellinger talking about it. Really interesting stuff. Punch it. It just opens up a completely different part of the game. You know, we were uh, just talking about it. Um, Your whole life growing up, you hit a line drive. Your pitcher's right there. You hit a line drive back at his face. That's a hit your whole life. (laughs) 100% of the time. In these last five years, it's an automatic out. Yeah, there's a a shortstop standing right behind. Shortstop right there, and vice versa. You have a a third baseman in right field. And so that ball you've hit in front of right field used to be hit your whole life. And now you got Manny Machado standing right there (laughs) catching everything. Yeah, with a a couple gold gloves. What I was telling him, what I'm, I'm most excited for, I think... Um, and, and I don't know how exactly it's going to look and how it's going to work, but I think it's going to bring a lot of athleticism back into the game. Yeah, I think so too. These infielders are going to have to c- cover a lot of ground and, and show off, you know, what they can do as opposed to, you know, standing where the ball's probably going to be hit. And I think it, for me as just like a baseball fan, I think that's pretty exciting. I like it too. The defensive team will have to have a minimum of four players on the infield, two infielders completely on either side of second base. Um, you know, they're just trying to increase the batting average on balls that are hit in play. Like, the teams are really getting really good with analytics. And, you know, the batting average in Major League Baseball last season on balls hit in play was, uh, you know, 291. Okay? 291, if you put the ball in play, you hit 291. That's six points lower than it was a decade ago, and it's ten points lower than it was in 2006. A lot of this is shift-related. I think it's a good move by baseball. I'm a purist. I like to see the second baseman in the general vicinity of where the second baseman's supposed to play. Mark Spears. 
talking about the Eagles and the 49ers. He likes the Eagles. He thinks they're the better team, but will they win? Here's Spears. Punch Sunday, it. when I watched San Francisco and Dallas, I would have I would have thought that San Francisco was the team that could go and be Philly is a much better team than the San Francisco 49. Like, like it, and look, that don't mean that they gonna win the game. We all know that. But when you look at how Jalen Hurts operated, not just, not cause it's the Giants. Remember, it is 13 wins on the season. By the way, this ain't just a one game litmus test. They are damn near impossible to defend. Here's where he's wrong. It is a one game litmus test. In the same way that I think the Kansas City Chiefs body of work this season is better than the Bengals. Uh, the Eagles' body of work is better than the Niners. But who are these teams today? We asked that question in the NCAA tournament, and you have to ask it in the AFC and NFC championship games. The Niners are better now than they were in the early part of the season. They've got Christian McCaffrey. They've implemented him into the, their offense. They've got Brock Purdy at quarterback. Look, I love the Eagles. I love their body of work. But this is one game. And the better team doesn't always win. It's the team that's playing the better football. It's why I like the Bengals and I like the Niners. I think we're going to get a rematch of a couple of Super Bowls with the Bengals and Niners. I could be wrong, but I don't agree that the Eagles are much better than the 49ers. Let's keep in mind, uh, Dallas and Philadelphia played Christmas Eve and Dallas won the game. Uh, that doesn't mean anything. you got to go out and you got to perform. Kyle Shanahan's got a problem on his hands. He's got a player who was arrested facing domestic violence charges. Charles Omenahu will not be kicked off the team. Kyle Shanahan talked about it. Punch um, it. Well, we've looked into for the last 24 hours or 48 hours, not necessarily myself, but other people. We feel very good letting the legal process take care of itself and um, don't feel we shouldn't kick him off our team at this time. It was a misdemeanor domestic violence charge. I'd want to know more. I wish they would tell us more because I don't feel comfortable with this. Just, hey, we're going to let the process play out. The league is supposed to take domestic violence very seriously. But ahead of the NFC title game, you've got Amenahu arrested on a misdemeanor charge, incident with his girlfriend. She says she was pushed to the ground during an argument on Monday. San Jose police say there were no visible injuries. Um, she refused medical attention. It's problematic, right? This is a guy who plays a depth role for San Francisco. He was with the Texans before, but, you know, he, uh, he has three starts this season in 17 games. I don't like this. It's, it's a small cloud in this NFC title game. I wish they would suspend him pending the outcome of the investigation. Uh, not going to kick him off the team, they're saying. I get that, but I'm not cool with, hey, we, we've talked to him, we're satisfied. That's not enough for me. What did you learn? What do you know? What makes you satisfied? Well, you know, Why are you okay with this, Kyle Shanahan? I got so many questions. Coming up, Ryan Leaf is going to join us, former NFL quarterback, ESPN analyst. He's next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We've had Ryan Leaf on the show before. Fantastic interview. Great story to share. Former NFL player, former Washington State star, 
you can catch him on ESPN as a college football analyst. You can catch him on Sirius XM talking college football and hear him on Westwood One. He's got a podcast as well. Uh, he's traveling around the country talking to groups as a, as a speaker, a motivational speaker. Ryan Leaf joining us. How are you, man? Where are you today? I am in Alabama, my friend. I'm down here uh, doing some work for the University of Alabama um, around their wellness program, uh, their mental health and substance use uh, disorders, and we're traveling around the state. I've been here since last Wednesday, and uh, and then we've been in all over the state. We're finishing up uh, tomorrow in Birmingham, and uh, and I'll be back home. Give me an idea, because I think a lot of our listeners here in the Pacific Northwest have probably not spent a lot of time in the SEC footprint. How, uh, how, how often, what part of your day, how prevalent is that SEC feel with people talking about football and excited about the depth chart and all that stuff that we don't normally talk about in our footprint? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an institution, in, in, you know, like football is in our country, in the South, especially in the state of Alabama. Uh, you know, when I speak at these events and I talk about, you know, what that means, you know, the idea of being placed on a pedestal because of what you can do on a football field, uh, they very well understand what that means because it's, it's just a way of life down here. And, uh, and then you have Nick Saban just down the road who, you know, is the height of maybe the greatest coach of all time. And what people don't fully understand about what Coach Saban does, and, and this is a true story. Nick Saban was the first coach to bring me in to speak to his team. I speak to probably five or six teams a year now every fall, and it was because of him. He was the first one that brought me in to speak to his team right after they had lost the national championship to Clemson uh, with Jalen Hurts in his first year. And, you know, there isn't a better referral than Nick Saban. And he saw how much of an impact I had on his team that he re referred me to uh, the, the school's president. He asked me to come back. And now uh, the university asked me to come back where I'm not a you know a resident of the state, you know, but I sure spend a lot of time here because they're just at the cutting edge of what, what they do on the mental health side of things, which is, I think, probably foreign for people to hear because you talk about the SEC footprint and football only being it. They have a bigger picture about what's affecting their state, and Nick Saban's at the very front of that. He coaches these kids up, yes, and tries to win national championships, but he really prepares them for the next step when they when they transition out of his football program and into life. Ryan, you know what I love about you, man, is uh, you talk from your heart. You, you've had uh, tremendous life experience as a uh, high-level athlete. Uh, you talk about your sobriety openly. Um, I think it's really inspiring. Uh, you do open yourself up on Twitter to, to idiots who will come after you, and I love how you handle them. <laughs> I love it, man. Uh, you, you do a really nice job of deflecting them and kind of, Making them look, you know, basically putting some putting a spotlight on on, a, on an idiot, and everyone can see they're an idiot. Um, but you know, how candid do you get in these talks, and how much do you talk about your own mental health and sobriety when you're talking with the athletes? Oh, I tell them my story. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I, I tell them everything. It's as transparent and vulnerable because I have to be. You know, that they're, they're smart enough to know if someone's there just kind of, you know, blowing fluff, right? It's 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 imperative that I'm honest and that I'm vulnerable about it. And I talk about what happened because I'm exactly where they were 25 years ago, right? I'm sitting in a room listening to somebody maybe talking about what, what things can help and what things can't, uh, hoping that I'm going to make it to the NFL. That's where I was 25 years ago. 
so I know exactly how they're feeling, where they're at, what you know, what's going on in their minds and stuff like that. And so I want to give them as much information and understand that I'm not there to tell them what to do or what not to do. This is just my story, right? I've been from I've, I've experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, and not too many people can actually have that kind of experience. You know, trying to find that middle ground is what you're always looking for. And so, yeah, I think that's a big reason why coaches bring me in. You know, I think it just it gives some perspective uh, to these young men and and also to understand that, you know, uh, I'll ask them pretty early on, I'm like, who wants to play in the NFL? And, you know, everybody raises their hands. And then I said, everybody, you know, I said, all right, everybody put your arms down. You know, now two of you raise your hand. So two guys, uh, you and you raise your hand. All right. That's how many of you guys will go to the NFL. Now, you put your hand up. That's the guy that will make it uh, and be uh, in, in the NFL long enough to be vested, which is, which is three seasons. And the shock and awe on their faces in there and the reality of understanding that you better have a plan B. I don't mean you should vacate or stop working on plan A, but you have to understand and, and, and know that there is going to be failure that comes and how do you deal with failure in a positive and healthy way because that's the reason why I did succeed it wasn't that I wasn't as talented as anybody else out there or I wasn't as good as anybody else out there it was how I dealt with failure how do you deal with failure how does Jalen Hurts deal with losing to Tampa Bay in that embarrassing fashion last year in the playoffs and come back even better this year same way with all these great players and that's why it's so astonishing to me to see the greatness in them and be able to overcome that because I just couldn't and so when, when, when people on Twitter come at me, I think in the past I was always so sensitive to it and was, like, hurt by it or something like that. And now I've just accepted everything that has come with it that you're right. Sometimes you just show people the mirror. And maybe maybe they get the same kind of, uh, you know, clarity that I've gotten when I, when I was held accountable for my actions. Like, here, this is how you're behaving. This is who you are. And, and you can be better. And, you know, if they're willing to try to be different, okay, that's great. But if they're not, I still, you know, I don't know. I think I'm pretty funny. I'm, yeah, my brother's I, a comedian. Like, he's actually <laughs> – my brother's actually a comedian. Like, he writes and directs <laughs> and performs comedy. And I tell my mom and dad all the time, I'm the funny one in the family. I think I am. <laughs> Have you ever had the, the trolls on Twitter uh, reach out to you after, like DM you and say, hey, that wasn't my best moment. I'm really sorry. Oh, I yeah. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> That, that's oh yeah, <laughs> it's uh, and and then I, and then of course I take the high road because that's my you know you have a choice in those moments you double down of being you know kind of you know you know idiotic back to them or you go I understand man I get it I, I accept I accept your apology no problem you know no 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 harm no foul I won't you know I won't think about it again you know I'll move on with my day I got plenty going on but I appreciate that you know that's how I usually I'll respond to it you know a lot of people uh, also don't understand in those moments. Usually when I respond, I just then mute them immediately because I don't want to get into a back and forth, and I don't plan on getting a back and forth. And when you mute somebody on a social media platform, they don't know that. They just keep screaming into the fans sometimes, and you just move on to your next thing. And it's almost like a mic drop thing. And, it, and it's there's a surrender and an acceptance to it. But also I was just getting sick and tired of getting kicked around. At some point, myself in the mirror, liked who it was. I didn't care what anybody else had to say. And if you were going to talk, some dirt or talk some crap to me, I was going to give it back. That's just, that's just how it is now. And, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I don't take it too seriously. I certainly don't take myself too seriously. But what it has also opened up to, John, is it has allowed people who are struggling or who mm -hmm. might be going, things, going through things 
it's allowed them to reach out, and not necessarily to me personally, just just to say it. You know, maybe they're not confident enough to tag me in a in a post or something like that. It just say it out loud, and now it's 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 lost its power, and maybe they can address it. And it's really it's really been overwhelmingly um, you know purposeful, and uh, how social media has allowed for us to help a lot of people uh, because of my story and because of what I went through. Ryan Leaf, uh, you can catch him at Ryan D. Leaf on Twitter. Uh, Ryan, I thought about you the other day. I was watching Brock Purdy, last guy picked in the draft, lead his team down, and I thought, gosh, there's probably some guys who were picked sky high, thrown into really stressful situations as rookies, asked to win right away, that would love to be in that Niner offense in that system. You're one of them. I mean, you were picked number two overall in that draft. You go to the Chargers and save the franchise, Ryan. I mean, that's a tough task. Can you maybe speak to that a little bit, what you see Brock Purdy doing in San Francisco? Well, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there was no pressure, right? It was this guy that wasn't – no one expected to do anything that he's done. So there, there certainly wasn't any pressure. There wasn't any expectations. And then he's just gone out and performed at a very high level. I, I, I don't want to take away from what he's done. I, I, I think that's, that's been lost in all this uh, – has been the impact that Brian Greasy has had on that quarterback room. Uh, he came out of the booth last year for Monday night. Or last year for Monday night football, of course, John Lynch brought him on uh, with Kyle Shanahan, and and he's had to maneuver and manage a room that has had to start three different starting quarterbacks. A guy that was drafted third overall with a ton of expectation, a guy that was drafted and traded and was a was, a, was pretty much left for dead and then to get the most out of him. And then when he gets injured to bring in a guy that was drafted last overall, the seventh round and have him perform at a level high enough, uh, commensurate with, you know, the talent on this football team. So, uh, I, I think this has been a, a cumulative of, 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 of everything, but I just don't think enough credit is being, um, you know, heaped on, on Brian Greasy and how he's managed that room and, and got the most out of all, all three guys when they got, when they were on the field. I think it's fascinating to kind of look at the quarterbacks who are left playing and how different they are, and, you know, you can kind of understand this is a quarterback-centric game. You know, when you go back to Alabama or maybe you watch the NFL on a weekend, does the game feel different from you? Like, what changes have you seen maybe since you left the game? Maybe we're seeing some younger guys have success, or are the teams doing something different there? What do you see? Um, I, I think the guys are more prepared the college game has followed to the NFL before back 25 years ago, a lot of the coaches were old timers and they were really invested in what they did. And so they tried to impose their will, their offense on a quarterback that they drafted. You can look at that with the Jeff Fisher scenario with Jared Goff and what that, and what that produced a whole bunch of nothing. Sean McVay comes in, Sean McVay, you know, didn't try to implement what he did. He wanted to, build an offense around what Jared Goff did well. And that's a guy that could, could set up over the tackle and, and throw the ball over the football field. He's one of the purest passers I've seen in the NFL game over the last 15 years. And so that's what Sean McVay did. And, and I think that's what coaches are doing now. They adapt to what the player does well and then ask the player to improve on some things that they may be struggling with. And you look at Jalen Hurts where his feet really um, was the momentum um, – motivator in that offense. They asked him to get better over the offseason in his drop back and his accuracy. He did that. Same with Lamar Jackson and what Greg Roman and what the Baltimore Ravens did. I mean, there's a lot of this. What 
but Brian Dable did with Josh Allen. I, I think it's just the, the ability of these coaches to be more open-minded, have a much different perspective on them, and not try to impose their will, their offense, on somebody that may not fit into it because uh, they just don't. That's not their style, but they're not so stuck or so proud that their offense is the end-all, be-all. Um, we're going to shape it and know that I'm a good play caller, regardless of what the offense looks like. I'm a great play caller as an offensive coordinator, and that's how I'm going to make it work. In the Pac-12, we're looking at a season where we're going to see Caleb Williams back, Michael Penix Jr. back at Washington, Cam Ward back at Washington State, Bo Nix at Oregon. Um, you know, there are just uh, a line of quarterbacks, uh, including Oregon State getting DJ Uingalele uh, from Clemson. What do you make of that resurgence? Because it kind of reminds me a little bit of the era, maybe your era, or maybe a little after you in the Pac-12. Yeah, it was a pretty good time, uh, you know, in the late '90s. Jake Plummer, uh, myself, Brock Hewitt, Damon Hewitt. I mean, there was there was there was some some good quarterbacks. Cade McNown, uh, Carson Palmer. Right afterwards, you know. So, um, yeah, this is this is going to be a fun year. This is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be incredibly competitive. Um, I think, and it's going to make for some very entertaining games. You got the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, who may have not even been the best quarterback in the Pac-12 last year. You know, Michael Penix Jr. certainly could have uh, could have argued for that. Uh, Bo Nix, if he stays healthy down the stretch, you know what what that Oregon team could have looked like. All of those things is going to make for such a great season. Uh, I'm excited for it. You know, Washington State's got to take a good hard look. I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if they they hit look at the portal for something. You know, it's a new offense. Cam Ward, I felt like regressed a little bit down the stretch last year. Some things were really exposed. I mean, this is there's an emotionality with me to it because I'm a sure. alumnus and I, you know, I want him to be better, of course. Um, and, and and I just thought that he struggled a bunch, uh, you know, up in, you know up in class with the with the division, and then just against some of the opponents, they just couldn't beat the teams that they were not supposed to beat. Right, the five losses came to the teams that all had almost 10 win seasons, every one of them. So uh, it's important that they have a, find a way to win those games, and they need a quarterback to do it. So they need to see some improvement in our Buckles offense from Cam Ward. If not, I, I would suspect they're going to probably be looking somewhere else as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, as I, I, I was sky high on him to start the year, and then I didn't see him get better, and I thought the offense only got better when Nakia Watson was healthier and in the lineup, then all of a sudden they had another dimension. And I guess maybe that's just football. Maybe Cam Ward's just not that kind of guy that can, you know, put a program on his back and carry it. Uh, when you look at young QBs, maybe even high school-aged QBs, Ryan, what are you looking for? What jumps out at you when you see a kid, in, you know, in a camp or in a game that, you know, you walk away going, all right, these are the things I look for first, second, you know, as you're evaluating? I, you know, I, I struggle with that immensely from the high school level. So my best way of going about things is I call Yogi Roth. That's my answer in all <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah. I call Yogi Roth. I ask him all of the information that I need if I'm doing any analysis for people and things like that because he's so darn good at it and he's so invested in, in the middle of it all. I just, I, that's, he's got so much information going on around in his head. You know, I got enough going on in my life, I figure. So, uh, you know, I use him as a, an incredible resource. High school for me is, um, it's hard. It's hard for me to see what these these evaluators see because yeah. I, I look at plays and I don't see the future. 
I see the moment, and I'm like, why couldn't he make that throw? And Yogi will tell me, well, because you couldn't make that throw at that time when you were that age. And I'm like, yeah, I could. I know I could have. But he understands that the development that will happen and what he needs to do to progress, if he can evaluate players and see the future product of it, especially, you know, every single year dealing with the Elite 11 and what he's been able to do there. So, yeah, he's my kind of go-to guy when I need that information. When I watch college quarterbacks, you know, I look at comps at the NFL level, and I don't look at comps at what they are now. I look at them as comps for what they were like coming out of college mm. because that evaluates two different things. That evaluates a ceiling and a floor for that player. And, and so that's what I look at in terms of what a player is making the jump from the, the collegiate level to the NFL level. For the high school, the college one, it's so, so difficult for me to grasp or get my arms around it. So I utilize, you know, people that are smarter than me when it comes to that. You know, it's interesting because even you, when you were being recruited, correct me if I'm wrong, like I have a lot of respect for Dennis Erickson, you know, national championship, you know, guy's a winner, knows quarterbacks. He thought you were a tight end, right? Like he didn't see you. He didn't project you as a QB. Well, he did, but he also knew he was leaving. Like he, <laughs> he was very forthright with me. He also knew that if he got an offer for an NFL job, he was going. And that's pretty cool that he would tell a recruit that. So we fully understand that, that, and I think because of the ties of him, he married a Great Falls girl. He had Montana State ties. I just think there was something. Uh, we had a closer relationship, and it continued for the rest of our life. Um, but the recruiting coordinator down there at Miami, yeah, he saw me more as a tight end. Uh, and maybe he even floated the idea of a linebacker as well. So, um, you know, evaluating quarterback talent, especially with a quarterback where I was coming out of high school, where we didn't throw the football. We ran the option. We ran the veer. Like, if there was games that I had over, you know, 10 pass attempts, like, that was few and far between, man. I was I was running the football. Um, we were running dive, uh, triple option, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't know how I got evaluated as a passing quarterback, but I did, you know, and, and Mike Price saw something in me. And, and uh, you know, I made the, the best decision I could have of when I went to college, and he got the best out of me, that's for sure. Ryan Leaf, you can catch him on Twitter. He's a great follow. You can also uh, listen to him if you are into college football or the NFL. You can check him out on ESPN and on Sirius XM and occasionally on the show. I always love seeing you and bumping into you, Ryan. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it, John. You keep doing what you're doing, too. You're, uh, you're my go-to guy for everything Pac-12, especially living on the East Coast now. So you're an important piece of the puzzle for me, pal. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Take care of yourself. Uh, there he is from Birmingham. Ryan Leaf uh, spreading the good news and uh, telling his story. I have a lot of respect for him. That's not an easy thing to do. Leave it here. Our big splash coming up. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'll invite Ryan Leaf to that dinner party that we're going to have. You know, we're putting together a dinner party of sports personalities. I'll invite him. He's got a story to tell, has a whole bunch to tell. Fantastic interview with Ryan Leaf. If you missed it, get the podcast. Just like you can get the podcast of yesterday's interview with Voice of the Ducks, Jerry Allen, and yesterday's interview with Mike Parker, Voice of the Beavers. And we had Bill Shonley's uh, first statistician on yesterday's show as well. Total hilarious story about uh, the 77 championship as the Blazers returned home from Philadelphia and a whole bunch of fans showed up at PDX to greet the team 
And uh, Bill Shonley, sitting in row five of that aircraft that was taxiing, realized there was a big crowd out there. And he, when the doors opened, he jumped over a couple of sports riders and skipped by the Blazers players and emerged like the President of the United States at the uh, uh, coming out of Air Force One, greeting the crowd. Uh, anybody who knows Bill Shonley has a smile on their face when they hear that story. I loved hearing that yesterday. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It brings us to our big splash. One thing you need to know today, I got one for you. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, there was uh, some question about the health of Patrick Mahomes. Coming out of the uh, AFC Divisional round, he'll head to the championship game on Sunday. He says it's championship week and he's ready to go. He had a high ankle sprain in the first quarter of Saturday's uh, divisional round playoff victory over the Jaguars. Returned to the game in the second half. They won the game 27-20. Mahomes was listed as a full participant in practice today. Said the ankle has progressed since uh, the game. Says it's doing good. He's had some treatment. Felt better than he thought he was going to feel. But uh, he, you know, his style of play changed when he came back into the game against the Jaguars. Um, you know, this is a guy who leads the world in passes from outside the pocket. But he didn't make a single pass from outside the pocket in the second half against Jacksonville. Reminded me a little bit of the way Bo Nix played down the stretch for Oregon. Keep an eye on his ankle. If it's not right, it's bad for the Chiefs, obviously. I still like the Bengals. I think they're playing better football. I'm not sure about, you know, how close to 100% Mahomes is. Keep an eye on it. Coming up next, we're going to talk about Brawny plus DJ Uingalele with the L.A. Times writer Eric Sondheimer. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. Our next guest is a legend. Eric Sondheimer has been covering prep sports in Southern California since the 1970s. He's the best. He's the best on preps currently, and he's the best on past preps in the region. Does that make sense? We're talking about a guy who can talk about Bronny, son of LeBron James, and the circus that is around uh, Sierra Canyon High School. He also watched a ton of DJ Uyungalele in high school. St. John Bosco kid. He can give us some intel on DJ. I think if we're putting together a dinner party, what I'm saying is you can bring Charles Barkley, you can bring Deion Sanders, You can bring Tom Brady. I may show up with Eric Sondheimer of the LA Times because he's going to be able to talk about the 1979 LA City Championship game at Dodger Stadium. John Elway playing for Granada Hills. Daryl Strawberry playing for Crenshaw. Elway, I think, came in as a uh, mid-game reliever in that game. We can talk about all sorts of things in Southern California. Eric Sondheimer joining us now. Uh, did I give you a proper introduction? Yes, you, you brought back great memory. So thank you very much. <laughs> Let's, hey, can I go back to 79 in that game I referenced? So you got John Elway in the game. 
You got Daryl Strawberry playing for Crenshaw. I think Chris Brown, the former Giant third baseman, was also playing for Crenshaw. Like, like that must have felt like a big deal at Dodger Stadium for a high school championship game. Definitely, and when you look back and see what all those people accomplished, it, get, it gets even greater. But Elway did come in relief, and he just started striking everybody out. That, that's the memory I have, and uh, he played for Daryl Stroh, who also coached him a little bit in football, and he's probably the greatest two-sport athlete uh, that I've ever uh, covered, although Giancarlo Stan is pretty good, too, and was a great football player. But, yeah, that's pretty memorable, and Crenshaw, you have to understand, from the inner city has never, ever re- reached that level again. Uh, it's obviously demographics have changed in L.A., but that was a remarkable moment in history. You saw some big things, you've, but you have navigated, and you've been the constant, Eric Sondheimer. And i got to ask you how your job has changed from, like, the 70s to now, the types of things you're covering, the types of stories you tell. Is it all the same, or has it changed dramatically? Oh, it certainly has changed dramatically. Obviously, the Internet, in a lot of ways, has made it easier because uh, you can look around and get things quicker from in, from sources, from schools. Uh, Twitter does a great job of, of making things instantaneously. But video and just the social media thing has changed everything for sure. And I'll give you the greatest example. For the first time since I've been at the L.A. Times since 1997, we actually assigned a writer to cover just Sierra Canyon games. So, uh, you know, we don't have too many writers. It's myself and, and one other person, Luke Evans, and he's covering Sierra Canyon home games and even some road games out of state. So that's an example of the interest in Sierra Canyon, not just in California, but outside, uh, around the country. And you can see on Twitter who's trending all the time. It's Ronnie. So that's an example of how we deal with things. And so, yeah, it's definitely changed. Give me an idea of what that circus is like with Bronny and and just the the I guess the uh, the glow of it all. Well, I, I've seen him for four years, and let me just tell you, I, I've been trying to treat him as a high school kid. I was there when he made his debut as an eighth grader at Brentwood School, and they wouldn't let me take video. I've never seen it before. I was sitting <laughs> up in the stands. And then the person agreed, okay, you can do video, but don't show it till the end of the season. Well, that didn't work out. I shot the video, put it on YouTube, and I made—I didn't want to get kicked out of the gymnasium. But that's an example of, of how things are gone. He has not talked to any media for four years. He only the, the only media he's talked to are the ones employed by LeBron James' documentary crew. Uh, Sierra Cannon announced this year at Media Day that he was going to make himself available. But at the last moment, the head coach comes to the podium and says, Bronny James will not be speaking today. And so that's that. And I don't know if he will speak uh, uh, the rest of the season. So that's an interesting scenario. We have plenty of celebrity kids in L.A. that that are fine talking to people. Gilbert Arena's son I talked to yesterday. He's a great basketball player, freshman at Chatsworth. We have Robert Ory's son, plays for the number one team, Harvard-Westlake. We have... Uh, our Pittman's son plays for Sierra Cannon, and I, I believe he's spoken. So, yeah, it's an interesting scenario here, and that's fine. Whatever the parents want to do, that's fine with me. Give me an idea. Um, you know, recently Oregon gets, I guess, some good news. They find out, hey, you know, you're on the short list. I've kind of wondered about 
what kind of player he is, but we see him get All-American, McDonald's All-American status. You've seen guys, Eric Sondheimer. You've been at this a long time. Does Bronny deserve to be on that list? Is he that good? He's a good player. He's, he, the problem with him is for each of the four years, he's gotten injured. So right when he was becoming better and getting showing progress, he would get hurt. Freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and now senior year, he's got a uh, return to the knee injury. So that has uh, caused inconsistency in his game. But certainly at his best, he's a very good player. He's averaging about 14 points this year. Is he in a McDonald's All-American? Uh, there's several others in L.A. alone that would probably be more deserving based on their their body of work. But he's LeBron James' son, and there's a lot of interest in him. And will he play okay in that game? Yes, he would play okay. Uh, and so that McDonald's game long ago has uh, left us as far as picking players that really, truly deserve it. It's based on the summer. It's based on the previous year's uh, performance. has nothing to do with senior years. So I, I'm not one of those who's going to make a big deal out of it. I'm just saying that, that there are others probably a little more deserving, but he'll, he'll do fine in the game if he's healthy. Eric, let me ask you, you know, Dana Altman and other coaches over the years have probably come up to you and, and asked you, hey, uh, you know, what's this kid about? I mean, if they're doing their diligence, you get those questions. If Oregon was to ask you, hey, is is this kid mentally tough? Does he have uh, sort of the makeup or is the whole circus around him not worth the trouble? What do you say to that? You know, that's a hard question because he's not made himself available. You, you can talk to the teammates, and they all say he's a good kid. The coach says he's a good kid, so that that's important it, itself. But you never know until the, the circus arrives, and uh, you have to deal with all the things that happen. He's had a bodyguard since he was a freshman year. Uh, so it's an interesting scenario. Yes, he, he would probably fit in at Oregon, but I don't know what else would come with that. And as far as I, I know, Oregon is just a school that was mentioned that, that, that he's interested in, but I heard Oregon wasn't even recruiting him. So it, it's hard to say uh, who really is recruiting him and who is interested in him. It's, it's an unusual thing. It, it doesn't happen very often. So everybody has to make their own decision. And he's not going to be there very long either. So obviously LeBron wants to play with them in the NBA. And, and if LeBron wants him to play in the NBA, he'll play in the NBA. Eric Sondheimer, Los Angeles Times, is with us. You also uh, have had the opportunity to see a lot of the St. John's Bosco star who went off to Clemson, DJ Uingalele. I'm hoping I'm getting that close to right. But uh, what did you make of DJ, his transition to Clemson, now going to Oregon State? You have to be following that from your position. Okay. Here's the situation. He is a great athlete. I could see him playing tight end in the NFL. As a quarterback, he was very inexperienced, but he got better and better at St. John Bosco. It was always going to be a challenge at the college level. He needed really good coaching to keep improving. So he's, he's done, been up and down. To go to Oregon State, I think it's a great move because they have a coach who used to play quarterback, and he needs good coaching to take advantage of that athleticism. He's a great kid, a great, great kid. That's the number one thing I can say about him. He, he brought St. John Basco back from, from certain defeat in a championship game against modern day, and they won, and people love him for that. And so 
I think he'll do well, but there, there's no guarantees, obviously, in college football. He, he needs to keep improving, but I think it's a, it's a good place for him to keep developing. There's still a lot of pressure on him, just like at Clemson. And I just hope he has fun. And, again, if he doesn't do well at quarterback, one day maybe in the NFL he'll, be, he'll play another position. We've had several kids like that who are quarterbacks in Southern California and end up being NFL players as receivers, tight ends. Uh, a variety of places. Give me an idea of, you know, high school football in the L.A. area. We've seen some markets in some states that say, hey, participation's down, uh, numbers are dwindling. You know, you've seen some programs that are struggling to field JV or freshman teams. What's the health uh, state of union with, uh, you know, the high schools in Southern California? Well, California really got hurt by the COVID-19 situation, the the participation levels dropped. Football in particular has continued to drop almost every season for the last five or six. Uh, it was particularly bad during COVID because JV and lower-level teams were stopped and it was only varsity for a little bit. Uh, this past year, it looked like there was a comeback. The lower-level teams had returned, and I, I think the participation levels have gone up. We obviously continue to have, I don't know, people would say, I say it's an issue. Others may say is there's no problem, and that's called transfers. I think it's transfers uh, hurt high school sports. They're trying to follow the college game, or there may be colleges following high school. I don't know what who started it first. But in, in L.A., the, the super teams get lots of transfers, and it's very hard to beat them because of that. They don't have rebuilding years. They have reloading years because they replace seniors with transfers. So it's a whole, whole little development around here. And I, I always look for the stories where a neighborhood team somehow comes together for once in 50, 50, once in 15 years and has their best team and somehow pulls it out. But it's very hard in L.A. to do that at the highest level. You need transfers to succeed. You know, it, it's such a good point. Like, you know, and I'm allergic to it, too, because I'm a purist. And I say, you know, I, I like to see kids that stay in, in their area and attend their school and they're proud of it. Um, but it seems to be uh, the name of the game, probably AAU and club sports driving that. You got a chance to see uh, 2024 quarterback Elijah Brown, uh, Orange County kid. Oregon likes this kid. Can What can you tell us about Elijah Brown at quarterback? Well, he's only had one loss in his entire high school career, so he's a winner. Put him around good people, and he will get the job done. But he's just very solid, very calm. Uh, he's not spectacular, so there's always been questions. Uh, everybody has a different opinion on him because he's not a spectacular thrower, but he's an accurate thrower. He just gets it done. He's kind of like Bryce Young was, uh, not as great as arm as Bryce Young, but he gets it done, and he's a, a good leader, a quiet leader. And so, yeah, it's going to be an interesting recruiting process because the, the college coaches have to decide if they think that he will fit in with their program. I think he can fit in anywhere. But it will be interesting to see how good a college player he is. He's had great people around him in high school, modern day. Uh, they're supposed to name a coach in the next couple weeks. They, they should be the number one team next fall because they have everybody, almost everybody back. And he'll, he'll be, I think he's going to go through high school with one loss. That's my prediction. So, yeah, it'll be great to see what he does in college. Our guest, Los Angeles Times prep reporter and legend Eric Sondheimer with us. Uh, 1982 baseball, 
Los Angeles City Championship game again at Dodger Stadium. Cleveland High School has Brett Saberhagen on the mound. Palisades has got a shortstop named Steve Kerr. If my memory serves me correct, Saberhagen throws a no-hitter, and uh, I think he strikes out Kerr at least once in that game. But, man, did you have the sense at the time that you were watching, you know, uh, you know a potential NBA Hall of Fame coach, player who's going to win championships, and a guy who's going to go on and win the Cy Young Award in Major League Baseball? I can say that I truly thought Brett Saberhagen was going to be a major league star. He, he threw strikes better than anybody at that time, and he threw hard. And uh, I didn't know a whole lot about Kerr because he was more known as a little bit known for basketball, so he was playing baseball. And I, so nobody from Palisades was that impressive that night. They also had Jim Gilliam's son on the team, who was a great Dodgers player. So, um, but yeah, that's the best. Uh, one of the best athletic events that I've ever seen because in the parking lot afterwards, there was a big argument between the parents of Sabering and who was going to take them to channel four news to be on the Stu Nahan <laughs> show at, the, at 11 PM. So that was the big argument going on and stuff. So, but Brett Sabering, uh, yeah, great guy turned out to be a Cy Young winner and lived up to everything. All right, let me, I'm just going to ask you, you know, to go through, High school basketball, high school football, high school baseball. Give me the best player you ever saw in each of those three sports in, in your time covering L.A. sports. Well, football for sure is John Elway. He was, uh, I was, he was the first person I ever covered almost. Uh, Granada Hills, I started with the year that I started to work for the L.A. Daily News, so that was an easy one. Uh, for basketball, it's a little tougher because I, I've mainly been in the San Fernando Valley before then going on to L.A. But, you know, I, I've seen some great uh, players from Gilbert Arena to Dom McClain, who was, was truly a, a, a terrific player. And the other day I was out at the retirement for Tayshawn Prince and uh, Tyson Chandler, who I didn't really see in high school. But, yeah, so I, I'm not going to stay for, for California – other than I went back in high school when I saw David Greenwood and Roy Hamilton together at Vermin Bay, they were pretty good. So as far as baseball, um, I have seen so many Cy Young winners. It's just incredible. Jack McDowell to Saberhagen. Jeff Stupon was a tremendous player. And then we have uh, Giancarlo Stanton, uh, Ryan uh, Braun. It just goes on and on. There's so Baseball is really the sport in Southern California where the, the most pro athletes come from. So that that's a, a difficult cast. But Jack McDowell, he would rank as probably the greatest. He was on the best team that didn't win a CIF title. They were unbeaten until the great coach, who happened to be Jack's brother, decided not to start him in the semifinals, and they lost. The only <laughs> loss ever. So he... he if he would have played in that game, they would have won because that, that, they're the best team that never ever didn't win a championship because his brother didn't start his brother. <laughs> I love this. Eric Sondheimer, you're the best. Great follow on social media. I love bringing you on our show. You're a legend, and thank you for giving us your time. Really valuable and candid stuff. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. There, there he is from the Los Angeles Times. He's seen it all. Steven, really good, candid stuff on Bronny James. Uh, it, it's given me a little bit of pause. I don't like how shielded Bronny has been. I get what LeBron and everybody's trying to do. They're trying to usher him to the NBA, but if he's not LeBron's kid, 
I don't know if you know Oregon is that interested in him. I I don't know if he's a McDonald's All American. Yeah, that's that's what it seems like, right? Like if he's if his if his name isn't LeBron James Jr. Bronny James, he's not in this game, and he's probably not being recruited by any of these schools that he's actively looking at. So it's one of those things where. You know, the other day, John, I said I think Oregon should go after him. I think it would be good for them. I'm starting to reconsider. Just as some of the stuff you read about how you can't even talk to the kid, uh, you have to go through a bunch of different people just to contact his mother. Like it just, it seems like a lot for a player that seems like a fringe NBA player, right? Like that—that's what he is, and he doesn't seem like a guy that should be a one-and-done player. But he's gonna be a one-and-done player. It's gonna be a circus, and if he goes to your school. I have to imagine you have to start the kid. Like, if you, you can't bring that guy off the bench or else there's going to be a lot of backlash from his family, from his people. And we've seen what LeBron has done in the NBA, basically run franchises into the ground because they want to run the entire franchise. I think the same thing will happen at whatever school he chooses to go to. So I think I think you're right. I think I'm going to change my mind. Like, I, if I was a fan of Oregon, I don't know that I'd want him at the school because you're going to have to just go with whatever he says and be fine with it. I'm not sure the juice is going to be worth the squeeze, so to speak, when it comes to dealing with the entourage, the rules, the expectations, the hype. Uh, I get it. I get why Oregon's in on this equation. And if I'm Oregon, I want to be in on this on this recruitment. But I really am interested to know if Dana Altman reciprocates that interest. Uh, I get why LeBron James is saying, you know, Oregon hasn't offered, but we know there's interest there. I get it. At the same time, I'm kind of wondering, and I'm looking at the makeup of Oregon's Final Four team from several years ago, and I'm going, you know, this isn't how they got to the Final Four, by taking guys who, you know, weren't allowed to talk to the media when they were in high school. and No, they got there by developing Dylan Brooks, by developing Tyler Dorsey, by developing Jordan Bell, by having a young Peyton Pritchard who was dribbling basketballs till his hands bled in his neighborhood. And, you know, they fought their way there. I'll be really curious to see how this pans out. Maybe it's a sign of the times. You know, I, I, I would love to be wrong, but I don't think this kid's going to be a great college player. I don't think he's going to be a great pro. And to go off the recruiting rankings, like, I mean, Bronny is a little ahead of Jackson Shellstad, but if you watch the game of the LSI, like, Jackson Shellstad is a much better player than Bronny James at this moment. Bronny, much better athlete. Shellstad, much more skilled and I think going into college, like you said, I think Shellstad's probably more ready to go than Bronny James is. And if Bronny comes to your school, how are you going to start Shellstad over Bronny yeah. James? It doesn't well, make sense. Well, actually, I wonder if you could play them together. And I wonder if you could play Bronny off the ball and play Shellstad as your point guard. And I had somebody suggest that to me, and I said, yeah, but you're asking a lot here. And you're right, because the expectation will be – that if you're taking Bronny, that he's going to get the minutes. He's going to, you know, I don't know if Oregon, I don't know if Dana Altman's up for that. After Bull Bull, after Lewis King, after, you know, I, I don't know. We will find out. Leave it here. you got the ball to face truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the ball face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. For those of you who like uh, great entertainment after the BFT, I caught the pulse with Peter Sampson last night, and I caught it the last uh, two nights. It's fantastic radio. Peter, you're doing a great job with that show. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Tune in to Peter Sampson 
Uh, are you on tonight or tonight a talk Timbers night? I always lose. Tonight is a talk soccer yeah. night. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, catch him tomorrow night. But I caught you last two nights. You're having fun with that show, and it shows. So there you go. Yeah, thank you, Check man. That's out. awesome. The Pulse with Peter Sampson. Uh, some uh, news in the NFL. I mentioned it earlier that, um, you know, uh, Pat Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes says he's good to go. Do you believe him, Stephen? Is Patrick Mahomes, can we take any athlete at their word nowadays when they say, hey, I'm good to go, I'm going to be fine? You know, I, I always go, yeah, 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 we'll see when you get on the field. I don't think we can 100% believe him, but I think we can believe him somewhat. Like, at least he, at least he's, you know, he's not on the injury report. I think that's a, kind of a big, big deal to say, you know what, I'll be okay to go, and then he practiced fully today. I mean, I think if he says he's ready to go and then he doesn't practice, I think that's one thing, but he kind of backed it up a little bit. I got to see him to believe him, and I want to see him under pressure. I still think the Bengals, I think even if he's healthy, I think the Bengals might win that game. I really like the Bengals if he's not healthy, and so I guess I'm kind of leaning into the idea that until I see Patrick Mahomes running around being Patrick Mahomes, if he's in the pocket and he's not himself, the Bengals are going to win that game, and they're going to go to the Super Bowl. And frank, Frankly, they might eat anyway, but uh, I think these games this weekend are going to be fantastic. The NFL playoffs, I think, to this point have been pretty good. I think this is uh, the weekend where we kind of go, oh, wow, like the NFL has really uh, showed up. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about reporters and athletes, the interactions between them. Uh, I have some great news conference moments that have happened in the last uh, couple of days with uh, subjects, coaches, ending a news conference, barking at a reporter, got another reporter who – uh, made Russell Westbrook blush. Charles Barkley's going to weigh in on this. I think it's a fascinating topic. You uh, have heard, even this week, Damian Lillard bristling at a reporter's question that I thought was a very fair question that we all want to know. Uh, the interactions between subjects and reporters. We put a spotlight on it next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. We're going to talk about reporter-athlete conduct. We're also going to talk about what is uh, what is poor form uh, in and around this. Uh, you know, coaches and reporters don't get along sometimes. I've been in these situations. Uh, players and reporters don't get along. And we had an incident uh, earlier this week where Shannon Sharp uh, was... Uh, called out after uh, mixing it up with Dylan Brooks uh, and the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, Charles Barkley has also weighed in on this. But I want to start with, uh, let's start with just the idea that, you know, the news conference in general, Anna, you've been in a million of them. I have too. The news conference in general, I find it to be kind of the worst possible setting for me to do my job. Like nobody asked me what I needed as a media member. As it came, as it pertains to access and a conversation with an athlete or a coach, the news conference, by 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 definition, is made for television. It's made for TV news. There are television cameras there. The uh, the subjects are often up on a uh, raised platform with microphones in front of them. The media members are down on folding chairs. Uh, we are uh, told to uh, state our name and affiliation when past the microphone. 
the last thing I want to do is ask a question that I want to share with my I want to share the answer with my readers and my listeners. I don't want to share that with TV. I don't want to share that with the whole room. It's the worst possible setting for me. And and yet I think it's beneficial not just for TV but also for the teams because it's efficient. Yeah. Right? Because you know, you don't want the players to be available <laughs> for two hours after a game. It's just kind of a one-shot wonder, right? And I've often rankled the media people by, I'll hang off, I'll hang out off to the side, and I will sometimes pull the subject aside as they're leaving the news conference. Yeah. And I'll walk and talk with them. Right. And I'll get something nobody else has, right? <laughs> right. And I'll say, hey, I don't want to ask this question. I used to do do this with Chip Kelly a lot, and he would he would walk and talk. Yeah. Some guys go, no, I don't want to do that, but most of them will do it. Um, and I would often get something I couldn't get in the news conference, and then TV didn't have it. Right. You know, nobody else knew what I knew. Right. And it was a question I really wanted to know. Like, I don't want to give – like, I'm kind of providing a freebie to television <laughs> by going, here's my great question. It's not just television, but yeah. yeah. But here's my great question. Yeah. Let's ESPN, give it to everybody. Yeah. TNT, local news people who are just standing there. Yeah. Like, I'm going to ask my thoughtful, intelligent, great question, and they're just going to take it? Right. No, doesn't work for me all the time. But these things have now turned into, in a lot of cases, sparring matches uh -huh. between the reporters and the subjects. Yeah. Why? Why has it become combative? <sighs> um, it's annoying, actually, to me, because I think what it's become, we've all been at a news conference where you will have a reporter who is very much about being in the limelight. And so they're asking the question in such a way, or they're asking the type of question that they know is going to generate probably a combative response. And they're doing it because they want to cause a stir. They're stirring the pot and they're doing it in a very public forum. And granted, maybe they don't maybe they're not sourced well enough and they don't have a strong enough connection with the person they're asking the question of you know, to be able to ask that a one-on-one. -on -one. But to me, there's a lot more grandstanding these days at pressers like that. And it's all about reporters, you know, getting talked about. Oh, did you see what that person said to that football player and how that football player responded? You know, it's just, it's become all about, you know, the 10-second, 15-second clip. Now, I have been in that situation where, I don't have access to someone one-on-one. -on -one. I know they're not going to walk and talk with me, or I can't take the risk that they're not going to after the news conference. And I have a tough question to ask them. Yeah. And I have to ask it in that setting. Right. And uh, I often, you know, cringe a little because I don't want to come off like I'm grandstanding. But, you know, I've asked coaches in that setting before, do you expect to be back next season? You know, do you, like, basically are you getting fired? Right. You know, and, or asked them, uh, you know, and – Sometimes they will answer, and other times they will bristle at it, and mm -hmm. that's not new. But I want to play something that happened uh, as a reporter named Julia McIntyre uh, was in the post-game news conference with the Lakers and Russell Westbrook. Okay, mm -hmm. Westbrook is a, a controversial player because he is intense. I've you know he's I've seen him mix it up with reporters. He's also, I think, easy to criticize. You know, he's had some rough stretches where he didn't shoot well, he didn't play well, he's making a whole bunch of money. Listen to this exchange. And I apologize for anybody who hasn't seen it. Russell Westbrook is literally taken aback when Julia McIntyre 
The reporter asks him this question. Listen carefully. Hi, Russell. Um, first of all, congrats on, congrats on making uh, the 24,000 uh, points mark. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, tonight you used impressive dribbling skills to successfully uh, fake out your opponents multiple times. And um, in the second quarter, you made a jump shot where your body was turned like 180 degrees away from the basket. It was just an amazing shot. You're always making these spectacular moves with just within a split second. Um, do you anticipate doing them, or is it just a second nature to you? Like, do you just not even have to think about it? Um, you know, the way you explain it, you need to be around more often. I, 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 you know, I just try to go out and do the best, the, the best way I can. Uh, try to, you know, find ways to better make, uh, make some shots and make the right play. <laughs> I, I love the question, and I want to know so much more about Julian McIntyre, who is, uh, uh, you know, uh, apparently on the beat now. <laughs> covering the Lakers. What did you make of that? Look look at Westbrook's reaction. He's like literally he went like what? Yeah. He sat up in his seat. Yeah. Not used to that. Uh she was so complimentary of him. Uh yeah, that's uh unusual, I guess, you know, to hear somebody come at him that way. Yeah, but do you think <laughs> like I I thought it was hilariously nice. Yes. Like I thought it was really interesting way to ask the question i think she has a good question like is he premeditating all the moves but i think russell westbrook is so used to people just bagging on him that he didn't know what to do with it and i kind of liked it <laughs> there's nothing like taking a subject that can't be phased and then completely disarming the subject right right it was a great tactic by her yeah. Now, I gather she's not very experienced. She sounds really young. I don't know who Do that is. Do we know is. anything about her, Stephen? Do we have anything on Julia <laughs> McIntyre? No, I was. A, I, I mean, I didn't want to look it up on the computer anyways. I feel like that's one of those work computer things you don't want to look up. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're going to come up with something bad? I don't know. You know what? I, just, I was playing it safe. <laughs> I was playing it safe. I'm uh, I'm I'm gonna find out more about her. Here she is. She is a uh, student. She is at uh, News Four in uh, Los Angeles. So she is CSUDH. What is CSUDH? CSU Dominguez Hills. Uh, right. Looks that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Julia okay. McIntyre. We found yeah. her. Yeah. She's been on this beat for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm and I'm looking it up. She's a she's California State University Dominguez Hills. So <laughs> Good she for is her. she is a student reporter. Okay. She is on her way. <laughs> um, conversely, let's go to Jim Beheim, the legendary 78 year old coach, stormed out of a news conference when he was asked, uh, you know, why his team can't close close out games. He also hit his knee on the chair. It's the second game he lost by four points in the span of eight days. Why can't the team close out uh, the game? We're done. Boom. Jeez. Oh, we're done. It's like okay. I'm I'm over it. Uh, there are oh. bookends. Those two clips. Now Charles Barkley also weighed in on Shannon Sharp. For people who don't know what happened with Shannon Sharp, um, Shannon Sharp. You know, Fox Sports 1 got into a back-and-forth argument with Dylan Brooks just before halftime on Friday. Grizzlies-Lakers are playing. Um, Sharp 
stood up. He was shouting at Brooks. John Morant, Stephen Adams came over too. Security had to get involved. Um, Sharp has since apologized. Charles Barkley weighing in on this. Reporters can never get into it with players. Uh, that's my rule of thumb because, you know, we get paid to talk about these guys. And if you got if you hate guys or don't get along with guys, you're going to be somewhat biased whether you believe it or not. You know, and television is a very powerful vehicle. And you got to be really careful because people believe everything we say, unfortunately. Uh, so I'm not saying anybody was right or wrong, but I'm saying as a guy who's on television, I could never get into it with the players. That's just my rule of thumb. Charles Barkley saying there's a, ch- a separation of church and state when it comes to this stuff. Uh, I don't know. I Look, I, I think that uh, as a badge of honor for myself, I like that uh, I always feel good when I can criticize someone uh-huh. but maintain a relationship with them. Right. And I think that, to me, is the defining thing. And I think I got better at that as I got more experienced in this business. You know, I'm, uh, you know, it took me probably four or five newspapers to figure that out. Like, hey, like, the beautiful thing is when you can fairly criticize someone and that person understands where you're coming from, and probably down deep, most of the players who are getting the criticism or the coaches are getting, like Jim Beheim knows his team can't close out games. Yeah. It's kind of the way the reporter asked the question, I think. That, I don't think there was anything wrong with the reporter it, and how he asked the question at I, all. I don't know. I think Jay, Jim Beheim was just having a bad day. He's 78 years old. He's too old for this crap. And he just got up and left. <laughs> Done. But, but I always feel like, like, you know, and I've said this numerous times to coaches. I said, look, if you don't like something I'm writing or saying, call me and let's yell at each other about it and let's hash it out. And I, I've had that conversation with Mario Cristobal and Jonathan Smith and Chip Kelly and, you know, Jerry Tarkanian. And, you know, it goes back to, like, I want to treat you fairly, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to criticize you. I, I got a point about the Bayheim one. I feel like the question, while it is fair, there was no substance to it. Because what is Beheim supposed to say? Is he going to blame the players? Is he going to blame himself? Like, those are the only two answers he can give. If he gives, like, a certain play, a specific, like, play that he didn't like that Jim Hayhan ran or the defense they were running, like, that's different. But the fact that he just said, why do you guys struggle in late games? Like, there's no answer that's going to be correct. Let me let me play the question again. It's the second game he lost by four points in the span of eight days. Why can't the team close out the right, games? We're done. <laughs> like, how is Bayhouse supposed to answer that question without, like, making somebody mad or just being like, oh, it's it's on the coaches? I, I think there's a lot of possibilities no. for how he can answer that question. But, but I actually ahead. think My point guard needs to stop turning the ball over. That's what, is that, like, he can't say that. I, I actually think that it, it has an unnecessary edge to it. Why can't you guys close out games? Maybe why are you struggling to close out games? Like, you know, I, I don't know. It's the second time in eight days that's happened. Why are you, you know, how frustrating is that? Uh, what is going on? Help us understand what's happening. Is it, But that's it, why he's paid the money. Like, he's paid the money to answer the tough questions. And it's it's not the reporter's job to couch it in a nah, nice I way. Like I don't it, think he needs to be nice, but I think he was being intentionally pointed. Yeah, I don't, like, I don't think it was a tough question. I think it was just a mean question of saying, you guys suck, why aren't you winning? 
Like, but that's see, what he, he should have said. To me, he can answer that a number of ways. You know, we need to practice differently. We need to, uh, you know, practice in a way that prepares us to close out the games. We need more muscle memory to be able to close out these games. We need to play like champs, you know, like there's, there, there's got a to make your free you got throws. to make your free throws. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't. Jim Boeheim, 78. Let's start with that. I mean, he is old and, you know. <laughs> that, look, I, I don't want to be accused of being ageist, but I'm going to say this. Like, this is not a 78-year-old year man's world college basketball right now. It is NIL. It is transfer portal. It is all about recruiting. Like, we see Mike Krzyzewski going, uh-uh. Chris Peterson going, nope, I'm out. Like, Jim Boeheim's over here going, I'll, I'll do it another year. You know, like, I think uh, it's he's got to be at his wit's end, you know? Yeah. So what do you make the Shannon Sharp thing? Is he out of line for jawing at a player during a game yeah, like that, that, talking trash Yeah, you can't do that. You can't, like, look, a fan can jaw at a player and talk trash. But Shannon Sharp, you don't stop being Shannon Sharp just because you're sitting in a seat in the arena. I Like, in the same way that I wouldn't, sit in the arena and heckle a player if I had a ticket, like, I think it would be poor form. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think it would be poor form. Like, even though I, oh, I'm here as a fan tonight. Like, you can't take the, you're not Clark Kent. You're not, Shannon Sharp's not taking off the, you know, the tights and the cape and going, okay, I'm not a media member now. I'm now a, uh, I'm now just a fan. You can't do that because the players obviously recognized him as Shannon Sharp, the media member, and we're jawing at him. So, you know, and Dylan Brooks, you know, I don't. I think there's a criticism that you can give as a media member that is more powerful in the platform that Shannon Sharp has than heckling at a, at a sporting event. So I think Charles is right to that extent. But, you know, it, let's, make, let's make no mistake. The criticism that we see on some of these TV shows isn't all that different than heckling. What that, do you mean? That Skip Bayless and Stephen oh, yeah. A. Smith. and I mean, it's kind of glorified, refined heckling that is going on. It's just not courtside. <laughs> yeah, it's not courtside, and it is designed to get a bunch of attention. So, And the players hear it. Like, you know, I gather that Shannon Sharp, you know, he had a, he had a rough go in the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's been he had this big spat with Skip Bayless, and now he's standing up at the game, and he's getting criticized. I don't know. I just think I would love to see – a uh, you know uh, a return to the open locker rooms. Look, I've had combative situations in open locker rooms. I had Rasheed Wallace tell me to get out of his face. He's going to punch me. You know, I had why know, because because what invited to the I, dinner party. Yeah, you know, I I came up to him after the Blazers were playing the Dallas Mavericks in 2002-2003 NBA playoffs. The Blazers got down two games to zip. Uh-huh. I walk into the locker room right after the game. I walk over to Rashid's locker room. No one was, you know, hardly talking to Rashid at the time. I said, Rashid, uh, can you do to them what they just did to you on their home court? He whipped around. He was pissed off at the game. He says, if you don't get the bleep out of my face, I'm going to punch you in the face when I come back. And he walked to the shower. Zach Randolph in the adjacent locker leaned into me and said, hey, when he comes back, you get your head on a swivel. He's liable to swing on you. And I was like, Zebo, you you punch someone in practice. What are you talking about? But I felt like in that moment, because the other players heard it, Yeah. I had to stay there. Right, right. So I didn't move. Yeah. I did not move my feet. And I kept thinking, if he swings at me, what am I going to do? Now, 
Rasheed Wallace, six foot eleven, he's got these long arms. I thought, you know, if he swings at me, yeah. I'm gonna put my shoulder down and I'm just gonna try to bury him in his locker. It'd be hilarious. Like everybody go, remember that time that reporter buried Sheed in his locker? This is what like, you like I was going through my mind, like what am I gonna do here? When Sheed came back, he was totally cooled down. Yeah. He didn't say anything. I stood there the whole time. I never moved. And then when he finished, I walked away. When he got dressed, I walked away. See, this is what I don't understand, because you covered the Blazers during one of their most tumultuous times. Like, this is when there were arrests happening. There was a yellow Hummer involved. There was, The like, dog fighting. Dog fighting. I mean, Patterson, it was... Sex offender in the locker room. Yeah. yeah, it was like, you know, throw a dart. And this was a team that you regularly saw, regularly wrote about yeah. their misgivings off of the court, and yet you still had to be in the locker room and go to practices and be around them you all the time. You had to walk back in there. You had to. And what they didn't know, and I knew, I had come from the San Jose Mercury News where I had covered the NFL. I'd covered Ter Terrell Owens at a time when he was pulling the Sharpies out of his sock, and he was difficult. And before that, I had covered Jerry Tarkanian. And I got to tell you, that locker room, Tark's locker room, was rougher than the Blazers' locker room. Because the kids that were in Jerry Tarkanian's locker room weren't making millions of dollars and didn't face fines if they did something. Those guys, legitimately, I would leave the arena sometimes and I would go, I hope one of them, you know, one of these guys doesn't come after me. Like, because they were angry about what you were writing about him and what you were reporting about him. And I never felt nervous in that way in the Blazer locker room because most of the guys in the Blazer locker room were, you know, it was just a tremendously strange collection of characters mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah. And I was there a lot, and I was with on the road with the team a lot, and I would walk back into practice. I just, I can't. Uh, it was, but it was never boring either. It was yeah. never boring. It was fascinating. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. NFL playoff games uh, coming up this weekend. Uh, tomorrow's show we will focus heavily on the football that will be played over the weekend. Um... We got a whole bunch of uh, funny things going on in sports. Anna will uh, highlight some of those, I'm sure, uh, as part of the 5 at 5 coming up top of the hour. Uh, we also uh, need to address the idea, like, hey, I wrote in print today. I, I don't know. Let me, let me just ask this question. I'm writing about the Pac-12 and this $50 million that the Pac-12 did not account for or apparently owes to Comcast as part of their distribution deal for the Pac-12 networks. Um, the Pac-12 has got a mess over this. They fired two people. Uh, I did some digging around. Uh, I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. Anna, do you think it's too inside baseball? Do you think people, sports fans, care about where's the $50 million and what did Larry Scott know as much as I do? Um, I think... If you can explain it, and you have, that it is interesting. I mean, that is not a small amount of money and uh, ultimately affects, you know, all the schools in the conference. Like, that's really 
the bottom line, right? Is like yeah, everybody's going to owe about four million dollars, right? So uh, there is a direct impact on you know the athletics that are happening at each of those conference schools. I want to get my hands on that investigation. I learned a lot about what went on behind the scenes with this fiasco. I'm going to call it a fiasco now, for now. Uh, you can read it at johnconzano.com. Coming up, the five at five. Anna will read them, and I'll react. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Welcome to the happy hour. Love that you're here for it. We try to make it happy. It, it, it kind of, uh, I think it makes sense. Happy hours should be happy. I've seen some happy hours that weren't happy. But this show aims to make the happy hour enjoyable. Uh, Deion Sanders asked a question on social media today. He asked, if you were given a choice of love or peace, which would you choose? And then he said, it's not a trick question. He just wants to know what you prioritize in your life. One thing does not guarantee the other. Do you want love or do you want peace? And money's not an answer there. Love or peace. Those are the two questions, the variable. We'll talk about that later this hour. I'll take your phone calls on that front. Love or peace. But first, Anna's going to give us the five kind of biggest, most important, maybe, stories in sports. (laughs) It's the five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. Number one. Anna, go. All right. What happened here? Patrick Reed, golfer. Tossing a golf tee at Rory McIlroy on the Dubai Desert Classic driving range. There's apparently video evidence of this. Patrick Reed, who is now a member of the Saudi-backed LIV Golf League, reportedly approached McIlroy, but uh, he tried to say hello to the Irishman, and it was disregarded. And in response, Reed flung a tee in McIlroy's direction. Wow. Apparently upset that the spokesman for the PGA Tour would not acknowledge him. This is like the most golf-ish dispute ever. Rory McIlroy has been one of the most vocal critics of the LIV uh, golf events. And Patrick Reed is on the events. So... I think, uh, you know, here's what Rory said about the LIV events in the summer. I certainly don't think they should drop the hammer. Um, look, they're well within their rights to enforce the rules and regulations that have that have been set, but um, there's going to be an, you know, it's going to end up being an argument about what those rules and regulations are. So, um, like, I have some very close friends that are that are playing in this event in London, and I certainly wouldn't want to stand in their way to for them to do what they feel is right for themselves. So um, I certainly, it's not something that I would do personally, but um, you know, I, I certainly understand um, why some of the guys have went, and, and uh, you know, it's it's something that we're all going to just keep an eye on and see what happens over these next few weeks. 
All right, there's some context to this. Roy McIlroy says he was down by his bag, and that Reed came up to him. He was busy working, started doing his practice, and didn't feel like the need to acknowledge him. The perspective and background on this is that Roy McIlroy got a subpoena on Christmas Eve. And this is a subpoena that he got from Reed's attorney mm. regarding the ongoing lawsuit involving the PGA Tour in LIV Golf. Yeah, it's a defamation lawsuit in Florida that um, he's suing a columnist for Golf Week. He's suing the parent company of Golf Week, Gannett. And he is suing uh, Rory McIlroy, uh, alleging conspiracy, defamation, uh, alleging that they have worked in uh, concert together to defame him. Uh, also, Patrick Reed throwing a T. I wonder if Rory's going to file a lawsuit saying, you know, put my life in danger there. Doubt it. Uh, look, I get that. Look, it's your, it's your livelihood. Rory's out there just trying to focus. Patrick Reed wants to have a conversation with him. Get out of here. You don't have to be friends. Show business, baby. Number two in our five at five. Let's go. Well, Aaron Judge uh, went on Jimmy Fallon last night, and he's opening up about a few things. He's talking about re-signing with the Yankees for not a small amount. And it turns out that his teammate, Anthony Rizzo's dog, played a role in his decision. I guess Aaron Judge's dog, Penny, and Rizzo's dog, Kevin, they're both wiener dogs. And uh, they're the best of buds. And I guess Rizzo was uh, texting him constantly saying, hey, our dogs are friends, texting him photos of the dogs <laughs> together and was working really hard to get him to re-sign. Never mind the uh, $360 million nine-year contract that he did eventually sign back on December 7th. Yeah, look, uh, Aaron, Ju too. Aaron Judge, he also talked in that same interview about his walk-up song and how he drives his wife crazy <laughs> because he's constantly all off-season trying to find his perfect walk-up song, going through like 30 or 40 songs in his car. Now batting number 99, Aaron Judge, and then he plays the music. That's so funny. <laughs> And then he starts it all the way over with a new song, and his wife is like, come on, what are we doing? Last year it was Hello by Pop Smoke, and now he's looking for his next song. <laughs> well, when you hit 62 home runs, do as you as you please. Number three in the five at five. Anna, go. <sighs> Let's see. Uh, should we talk about Giselle? Sure. I mean, is this sort of sports related? Yeah. She is Tom Brady's ex. Well, she's on vacation in Costa Rica. Okay. And uh, I guess her jiu-jitsu instructor. Oh, boy. They're getting close again. They're seen uh -oh. riding horses in Costa Rica. So it could be just a really great date for friends. Or maybe they're an item. There's no official confirmation they're dating. But I guess her camp had initially claimed that this guy, old uh, Joaquim Valente. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Has been. He wants to do the scuba. It's been tagging along on family vacations to train her and her kids in jujitsu. Uh-huh. Is this what, like, rich and famous people do? They just bring jujitsu instructors along I was wondering, on their family vacations? I was wondering how she was going to one-up Tom Brady. You know? Sorry, that's so laughable. Yeah. Why would her camp even try to claim that was the case. Yeah. He's just here to train her and the kids in jujitsu. Hey, I don't know what kind of jujitsu they're doing, but 
if you're going to replace Tom Brady, going with the uh, jiu-jitsu on your bingo card is not a bad way. You know what I mean? Like, he, this guy could probably handle himself after they do the scuba. You know? Hey, kids, we're going to go in my room and practice jujitsu. Don't leave it. Don't, don't come in. And they're riding horses together. Thank goodness he has a shirt on in the picture. Oh, you know? goodness. Okay. I say good for her. Aren't you glad I get to choose she's, these stories? She's getting back on the horse. My, <laughs> I'm making you your sports day oh, better, more enlightened. But apparently this horseback ride was two hours through the jungle. Wow. And she looks happy. I you just know? think mosquitoes. Family vacay. <laughs> there you go. Number four. In other domestic news, uh, Matt Barnes, I guess, spit on his fiance's ex during a heated altercation at the Cowboys versus 49ers game on Sunday. But the uh, former NBA champ claims that, you know, the ex started it all, threatening and shoving him. This happened uh, just before the playoff game at Levi's Stadium in mm. Santa Clara. Barnes encountered his fiance's former husband, David Patterson Jr., in a concourse. Yeah, he's a there former is... Ohio State football player. Oh, there you go. Yeah, David Patterson Jr. In the footage, you can see Barnes actually sprang the man with spit before he later got in the guy's face. Gaylord Perry not impressed with that spit, by the way. I, I saw it. I watched the video of the spit. Uh, I don't think any. I don't think it's a great spit, you know. Yeah. It's it's. There's uh, a good spit. It's kind a, of a weak spit. Not not a good spit. Nah. It's okay. not a. It's not a great. It, it doesn't look weaponized that spit. Yeah. But apparently Barnes has now filed a temporary restraining order in Los Angeles County against Patterson. So that's a spit and oh. run. Is that a spit and run? Huh? Really? Is that what you call it? You know, spit can be considered assault. Well, he assaulted the guy then yeah. with mucus uh huh, and, and, then, and then went and got a restraining order against him. So if I'm the judge in that case, I'm, I'm not giving him the restraining order. I'll, I'll, give, I'll just say, no, I'm giving Patterson a face shield. Yeah. You know? Sounds like we need to know more. Matt Barnes is always in these things. You guys remember Matt Barnes? I think it was Derek Harper and Matt Barnes mixing it up. Derek Matt, Fisher. Matt Barnes, Derek Fisher. Yeah, I'm sorry. Derek Fisher, Matt Barnes. It's like somebody's jumping over the, somebody's backyard fence all the time in Matt Barnes' life. But uh, the spit doesn't scare me. The neck tattoo does. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Is there anything more on. disrespectful yeah. than spitting on someone, though? No. Maybe throwing your shoe at them. No, spitting's worse, I think. Spitting's worse. Yep. Number five in five. the five at five. You have a pattern here, Anna. These stories oh, are wild. Go ahead. Well, this one uh, is sobering. The late Grant Wall will be uh, honored with this year's Colin Jose Media Award. It's given to journalists who made long-term contributions to soccer in the United States. Uh, he died at the age of 49. 49. Too young. Last month after collapsing, he was covering the World Cup quarterfinal between Argentina and the Netherlands in Qatar. He'll be honored at the U.S. National Soccer Hall of Fame induction at Frisco, Texas this May. Good for Grant Wall. I wish he were still alive, obviously, but he, he died of a, a ruptured aortic aneurysm uh, during, the, uh, during the World Cup. Um, for people who don't remember Grant Wall, 
Here he is in 2018 talking about the World Cup final. It's the World Cup final. I mean, you almost don't need to sell it. You know, it's it's once every four years. Uh, it's the biggest game in soccer, and literally there will be billions of eyeballs around the world on it. Good to hear his voice, Grant Wall, uh, going into the National Soccer Hall of Fame in addition to the honor that uh, you're talking about. So um, may he rest in peace. Uh, can I talk for a minute about kind of the overall tenor of the stories here? Uh, guys, which story that Anna brought up is the most interesting story that we would talk about at our fictional dinner party? Um, at what the dinner leads party? The conver- what leads I'd, the conversation? I'd go Giselle. I'd go Giselle. I would, too. I'm going Matt Barnes. Dirty gossip. <laughs> Matt, all right, so why is Matt Barnes always in the middle of drama? Let's start there. Some people He's got a type, just you know? draw it. To them. Yeah, you ever you ever meet that girl who says, I hate drama. I can't stand drama, you guys. And then is the most dramatic person you've ever met. Yes. Matt Barnes is the NBA version of that girl. Yes. Spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Steven, jujitsu at our dinner party. Yeah. We're definitely talking about <laughs> Giselle. Is she just posturing here? Is this a flex by her? You know? Yeah. Tom Brady. You know, you mo- you move on from Tom Brady. What do you do? Like you go, you got to go with mixed martial arts. Yeah, with a guy named Joaquin. Like, yeah, yeah that's that's a flex. Like he's my jujitsu teacher. That's that's great. I mean, I, good for her. Like I'm all I'm all on Team Giselle right there. That's that's a great move. Go after Tom Brady, who you know, after they get divorced, he you know they started winning games, and it was kind of like, oh, well, now he's divorced, he can start winning. No, Giselle's gonna flex back on you. And and you know what? Tom's not going to be spitting on that guy either. No, like what? Is, guy, like, like what's Tom going to do him now? Out. Like how does yeah. Tom come back? That was he come back with some model that you know teaches him handwriting or something? I don't know. Well, you saw like right away there was some model on Instagram who was like at the Buccaneers Stadium, like trying desperately to get his attention. I think Tom Brady kind of lives in that world mm-hmm. where people, you know, I'm sure Tom Brady's got a line of people trying to get his attention. So that's where I fall into the Giselle camp, like. I, I say good for her. And you Joaquin know? is such a great sounding name, too. Go get those jujitsu lessons all you like. And bring them on vacation with you. <laughs> I just I, For it, training purposes. It made me sad that he wasn't shirtless on the horse. Made you sad? Yeah. No, Can just we from just a, pull that quote? From an image. Can we pull that quote? From remember yeah, how, like, I marked it. Thank Do you, you remember how like Steven. Putin got on the horse and he was shirtless? Yes. You know. Yes. Like just that. That's, that's next week. That screams, you know, I am a man. <laughs> you know, next time I'm on horseback, my shirt's coming right off. Well, I imagine that's long, the... flowing hair from Joaquin <laughs> to like, you know. Yeah. No, no, he's clean cut. He, no. he's, he's clean cut. Uh, yeah. I, I had him more of a, uh, of a uh, Fabio look like a myself. Fabio. Yeah. I was disappointed to see he looked pretty routine. <laughs> That's what I was dreaming of, too, as a Fabio type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Whoa. this is a rebound for her, though, right? Like, don't you think she, uh, this is just Mr. For Now? Hey, as far as we know, he's just around to help improve her jujitsu skills. That's ridiculous. While she's on vacation. That's ridiculous. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a big jujitsu guy, but I feel like there's got to be some contact and stuff, too. Like, there's some friendly flirting when they're, you know, kicking and stuff. Oh, I wrestled around in, with on a jujitsu uh, forum with. Uh, and did Hoist you know Gr- he had a jujitsu trainer like this? Hoist Gracie, the 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 master of jujitsu. What are you talking about? He was he won UFC one. The Gracie family. You gotta start. You do know me. 
No. Do you even know I'm parent? No. I had a little, I wrestled around with day. Hoist Gracie. Breaking news. When he was doing a, I was, I was working. Okay. okay. This is not a vacation. Uh, I was working <laughs> and I heard that the FBI, this was a couple newspapers ago, was doing a seminar and they had hired Hoyts Gracie of the Gracie family of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to come train their FBI agents on how to disarm somebody who's got a gun. <laughs> now Gracie was that Gracie family for people who follow UFC or mixed martial arts legendary. Yeah. Like they you know, they didn't invent jujitsu, they might as well have. They brought it to the United States. They're teaching it all over the country. Like you see the impact they have had on mixed martial arts in okay. UFC, okay? Okay. Uh so uh it's a summer day. There's nothing going on. This is a good column for me. So I go to this FBI thing where Gracie's teaching the agents, okay, if so-and-so, they had these fake guns. Yeah. And Gracie was saying, here's how you choke a guy out, basically, or here's the touch points. Because the guy's like, he won the first UFC event ever yeah. without throwing a punch. Wow. Okay? He never threw a punch. Okay. He's a serpent. He gets on your back. You can't get him off you. It's like when you have that fake feeling. You think you have a spider between yeah. your shoulder blades. Yeah. You can't get to it. That's Hoist Gracie. Okay? okay. And so he was legendary. And they had opened up all these, you know, fighting places after he won. And, and uh, you know, of course you now see, um, you know, disciples of him that are still winning in UFC. Yeah. But um, he was teaching the UF, the FBI agents how to, how to do hand-to-hand combat. Uh-huh. And teaching him pressure points and stuff like that. So I went, I watched, I took notes. And then they took a break. And they said, hey, do you want to interview him? And I said, yeah. So I interviewed him and I was talking to him. And then I was asking him about, like, stupid questions. Like, you know, trying to understand, you know, how he makes somebody basically lose oxygen to their brain. (laughs) And he said, put your notepad down. Oh, wow. And he said, I'll show you. Uh Uh-huh. And... We wrestled around for yeah. a while, okay? Yeah. And my whole point of wrestling with him was to not get choked out, uh-huh. okay? How'd that go? So I went into it going, don't get choked. Within about 90 seconds, he uh, had me around my neck and was literally just cutting off the artery to my brain. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I kind of tapped him on the arm like, okay, this is not going to go well in about, in about 60 seconds. <laughs> Um, or less. He was a great guy, great guy, and he yeah. was there doing a public service. He wasn't even charging the FBI. He should have been. Yeah. I was like, you're not charging them for this? Yeah. This is a seminar. You're giving them a gift. Wow. But, uh, yeah. But I didn't bring him on vacation. We didn't get on horseback or anything. Yeah. Did you keep you know? your shirt on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were shirted. Yeah. So to speak. Well, not everyone can say they've had that experience. Yeah. I put it on my list, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Saw a Kentucky Derby, got choked out by one of the Gracies, you know, put it on your list. Leave it here. You got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I don't know if you're tired of Coach Prime already. I'm not. I think Deion Sanders has done some good things. I've been watching clips of him the last few weeks. He's talking to his players about, you know, how they're going to dress on campus and uh, that he wants them all wearing the same color socks in the weight room. And it's uh, – Anna, you made the point as we were listening to one of the videos one day that he's training them for life, not just a football game. 
Yeah, I mean, that's he's coaching the whole person is what I love about, you know, his message. He's not just dealing with kids uh, who are on the football field, but he's trying to get them to think about everything that they represent, you know, and the impression that they give just when they're walking around campus. I, I, I love it. I uh, I did a search for the word love in our sports library with audio clips, and I found 71,007 cuts from different sports figures citing the word love. Um, C.J. McCollum talking about the love of Blazer fans. No, it was cool. It was, it was very cool to, to be out there and to, to see the love, um, standing ovations, all that type of stuff. Um, to be a part of that was, was something special, something myself and my family will probably never forget. So I, I'm appreciative of it and thankful. And I thought it was a special moment. Um, Jonathan Smith talking about how much he loved the blitz that set up uh, uh, a big game. Loved it. Loved the call. And I'll tell you why. So there's about a minute left, and we needed one. They, we were down or up three by trying to create, forcing them backwards, holding them then to the field goal. Boom, boom, boom. He loved it. Uh, the word love comes up often in sports. Deion Sanders asked today, if you're given the choice of love or peace, which would you choose? He says, take your time, think it through. It's not a trick question. There's no right. There's no wrong. He wants to know what you prioritize in life, and you better believe that one does not guarantee the other. Um, do you take love or peace? Steven, you're going to go first. Go ahead. Um, I'm going to go with peace. Uh, I think a pe like peace of mind for myself would be a little bit better with love, and I think I would be a better mm -hmm. person as well. I see. Okay. Peter Sampson, love or peace? Uh just like John Lennon said, love is all you need, and it's no guarantee that one gives you the other, but true, true love in, in a way that most people, frankly, don't experience or express can lead to peace, but peace will not necessarily lead to love. There you go. I think Peter is saying he takes love. Stephen is saying nonsense. It's peace. <laughs> Anna, break the tie. Love or peace? Uh, I'm with Peter. I think that love can lead to peace. So if you choose love, um, you know, love, like, you know, love conquers all, right? Uh, love can lead to peace. I mean, ideally you have both, right? That's me. Cake and eat it too. Isn't peace a derivative of love? Like, if you choose love, can't you find peace? Like, but if you choose peace, you're not necessarily guaranteed to find love, are you? Yeah, I think that's what me and Peter are saying. Oh, okay. Kind of. Uh, How about you? I don't. I don't think there's a wrong answer to this. I think Dion's right. Um, depends which day you ask me. If I'm in one of those days where you know the world's coming at you a million miles an hour, you feel hassled. Uh, you're stepping on Legos in the living room floor. The dogs are barking when I'm trying to write. Uh, oh, that's like I, every day. I'll take peace in those days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think every other day I would probably say. We'll find some peace. Let's have some some true love. That's what I would say. The reason looking why at, I chose peace, and it's because I'm with myself 24-7. So, like, <laughs> if I'm okay with myself, like, yeah. I, I think my life will just be better, and I think eventually I can accept everybody, you know? Cause I, not that I struggle yeah. with, like, peace of mind with myself, but I do kind of struggle with it sometimes. Yeah. And so, for me, like, I would love to have the sense of just – peace of mind and never really having like too many big worries in the world 
I love that you you point out the fact like you go to bed, Stephen's there. You wake up, <laughs> I've always Steven's exactly still here. Still here. What are you doing exactly. all day? Now you know how I feel. It's funny because when you first asked it, I, my my knee jerk reaction was to say peace. I strive for peace. I work for peace because mm-hmm. my family of origin was not peaceful. My family of origin was chaos, and so um, you know if I don't think about it. And I just kind of go with the default me that's based on how I was raised and the the circumstances in which I was raised. I actually will default to chaos and not mm-hmm. choose peace. I will create chaos mm-hmm. and not peace. And so um, that's just kind of a daily thing. I just me. like that, that Deion Sanders is in the Pac-12, and suddenly we're having different conversations <laughs> on this radio show. <laughs> I can't wait for tomorrow. But his videos are really interesting to me because, like, He was talking to his strength and conditioning coaches, and he was telling them, you're not buddies with these guys on the team. I I don't want to hear that you're out drinking with them. I don't want to hear that you're out, you know, at the bar with them. I don't want to see you, like, slapping backs and being friends with them. Hmm. You're not their friend. They're not going to respect you on game day if they don't, you know, if they don't respect you on every other day. And then he's in the weight room, and there's a – there's everyone's in the weight room, and apparently – He's a big fan of black socks. Okay. Deion Sanders. He doesn't want anybody wearing white socks on his team. And he walks into the weight room, and one of his players is deadlifting and has white tube socks on. And he literally goes, you need to go change those now. We all wear black socks. It's a small thing. It's a little discipline thing. I I actually like what I see and what I've heard from Coach Prime to this point. I think uh, I like the disciplinarian that he is. I understand the logic of his of his madness, and I like, as you point out, that he's coaching the whole person. He's not just coaching the football player. There's a lot of coaches out there, and a lot of youth coaches out there that don't coach the whole person. And Deion Sanders, I so far, I'm I'm intrigued. I want to see more of this guy. I can get on board with the black socks thing. I only wear black socks. Yeah, see? Yeah. You could play at Colorado. I could. You know? I wouldn't get in trouble with the socks, yeah. If you were younger and if you were better at football, (laughs) you could totally play at Colorado. Yeah, if I was more athletic and bigger and stronger and faster, but I got the socks thing down easy. You got the socks thing down. You got that other thing. I feel like when I was little, no one wore black socks, and then suddenly, like in the last 15 years, they got big. There's trends. Yeah, I, we went through a, a phase when I was a kid where uh, nobody wanted the black cleats. Everybody, oh, really? You wanted everyone wanted to have the white cleats. Really? And then by the time I got to high school, it had flipped. Oh. Everybody wanted black cleats. Yeah. I don't know what they're wearing now. Well, the, bla- the black socks was the Fab Five. That's what they oh, started. Was that? The Fab okay. Five, yeah. I am also a black socks person. Yeah, I also yeah. do it because yeah. I have white legs, and so it makes them look not as white. Like uh, mm-hmm. you know. Then they're also when you ghostly. wear when you wear your socks. You know, like if you have white socks, they eventually kind of aren't white. Yeah, they're after, just gray. They're kind of uh, like they're an, on their way to becoming black socks. Yeah. There's like a blue mark on it. You don't know where that came from. Maybe one of them turns pink. If you if you have black socks, that never happens. If you're wearing black socks, Stephen, doesn't that actually make your legs look whiter because of the contrast? No, because the white I think it like blends in with my legs or something. So it just mm-hmm. blends in as all one color. It's re- it's weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to need a photo of this from afar. <laughs> I don't know that I have white socks as the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to leave it here. We're going to talk the NFL coming up. you got the bald-faced truth where you get both love and peace. <laughs>
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I haven't wavered at all with my NFL picks this weekend, but I want to unpack the 49ers-Eagles game. I want to unpack the uh, the uh, Chiefs and Bengals game. Uh, obviously, everybody's talking about the injury to Patrick Mahomes had the ankle sprain in the divisional playoff round. He says he's fine. I guess uh, how good you feel about the Chiefs hinges upon that. I don't trust it. I think in today's college football NFL world, um, injuries, I think it's buyer beware on injuries. I just, I think it, it's, it's too big a risk for me, and I like how the Bengals are playing uh, on top of that. And I think even if this, uh, if we got a healthy Patrick Mahomes, I, I think that game is essentially a pick 'em. But without a healthy Mahomes, I don't know. Here's Andy Reid. Uh, who was uh, talking just yesterday about? Yeah, it. no, he's he's uh, worked hard um, in the treatment and is doing okay. He's gonna play, so I mean that's uh, um, that's his mindset, and, and then we'll just take it day by day and see how he does. The game plan part, we don't have to do much either way. I mean, they both run the same play. So um, as as far as the reps, I, I've got to see how he how he feels. Uh, you know, we get ready for practice. What do you guys think? Let's talk about this game first of all. How big a factor is the Mahomes injury, and do you buy Patrick Mahomes when he says, I'm ready to go, not a big deal? I think it's a huge factor um, because Patrick Mahomes is that good, right? Like, I think if Patrick Mahomes is 80%, 70%, I think the the quarterback battle definitely goes to Joe Burrow, and the Bengals feel like they have the better quarterback. But I think Patrick Mahomes, if he's 90 95%, the Chiefs could argue, well, we have better quarterback now, and I think he's that special of quarterback. So I do think it's a huge deal in the game. And as far as believing him, you know, he he's had high ankle sprains before. I believe it was 2019 he had one. He didn't miss a game then. He said this one that he had against uh, the Jaguars in divisional round was not as bad as the one he had before, and he's had much worse injuries. I, 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 I want to believe him because he did practice fully today. So I'm on the side that I kind of – Mostly believe him. I don't think he'll be 100%. I don't know that anybody is 100% at this point in the season. Right. But I do think that he's going to be about as close to 100% as he can be. Now, it'll be very interesting to see if the Bengals put some pressure on him. And if he can't move very at the start of the game, maybe I'll change my mind. But right now, I think I'm kind of leaning towards believing him. Peter, where, where do you stand on the Bengals-Chiefs game? And the Mahomes injury, how big of a factor is that one for you as you handicap it? Yeah, I mean, I think the Mahomes injury is everything. And I was uh, scouring the internet. Of course, he, uh, you know, spoke at the press conference today. No walking boot. And I was watching him walk back out the back door like it was the Zapruder film. Just watching it over and over again. <laughs> no limp. I think he's going to be okay. And I think Steven hit it, though. He's not going to be 100%. But it's January 25th. Who is 100% at this point? But if he's hampered like he was in the second half, I think of the the last game, you got to give the advantage to Cincinnati. But I'll be real, I I believe him. I I think he's dealt with this before. I think uh, they can uh, give him whatever sort of uh, pain reliever that they need to do before game time, and I think he'll be good to go. 
I love the way the Bengals are playing. Like every year you get a team that is at about this point of the NFL season that just comes alive, starts playing football at a level where you go, ooh, look out, like they might be the best team. The Bengals, to me, I saw them coming because I watched their game against the Ravens in the last two weeks. I watched both the regular season finale and the wild card game, and I went, wow, like if this team just puts it together, the defense is really good. Joe Burrow is cool as a cucumber back there. The win over Buffalo was huge. Uh, I picked Buffalo in that game, but I watched it, and I, the Bengals are just better. And so I'm, uh, you know, I like them in this game regardless. They're on the road; that doesn't go in their favor. The 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 probable MVP is on the other team in Patrick Mahomes, but you know the Chiefs are getting a point in this game, and I like the Bengals to go to Kansas City and win. Uh, in the earlier game. The 49ers will travel to Philadelphia. I'm totally biased here. The Niners are getting two and a half points. They're an underdog in this game. But is this spread telling us that on a neutral field, guys, that the 49ers-Eagles games would be a, would be about a pick em? Like, is this just about the game being in Philadelphia? And where do you stand on the 49ers and Eagles in your prediction? Yeah, this, this one is really tough for me. And uh, despite what some people think, no, I'm not a Niners hater just because I'm a Rams fan. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, that defense is so good, right? And they sort of have a few pillars. You know, we question Brock Purdy, but he's played well enough. Uh, Debo Samuel, Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle. Those are very important weapons that matter. But I'll tell you, John, I mean, the Eagles... They were so good this season. The only question I had is, is Jalen Hurts healthy? Is he going to be able to go in the mm-hmm. playoffs? And we saw they absolutely destroyed the Giants. And, yeah, I mean, the Giants were outclassed. You expect them to lose that game. But, I mean, th- that was a serious butt kicking they put on them. And it was in all facets of the game. So, whereas, you know, a week ago, I was all on the 49ers bandwagon. I think they're going to represent the NFC. Now I'm not so sure. I think I'm leaning Philly because they have home field advantage. But I don't even feel good about that. No, I, I hear what you're saying. Go ahead, Steve. At the start of the week, I, I was with Peter. I was thinking Philly. But as I've gone on, I'm starting to lean the 49ers. And, and there's a couple reasons why, uh, you know, the way the Giants attacked the Eagles, and it wasn't very successful, but you look at the stats of that game, Richie James, seven catches, 51 yards. You know, he's a slot guy, and the Eagles have been giving up, you know, catches to the slot receivers all season long into the middle of the field. For the 49ers, like, who do they send in the middle of the field? It's George Kittle. It's Debo Samuel. That's a different animal than Richie James. And so I do think that if the Eagles play the way they have, they're going to give up some easy passes across the middle, and that's where George Kittle and Debo Samuel make some plays, and the 49ers can stay in this game. The one worry that I do have with the 49ers is just how well the Eagles have played at the start of games this year. In the first half, the Eagles lead the NFL in first-half scoring. They average 18 points a game in the first half. The second team is the Kansas City Chiefs at 15.7 points per game. So the Eagles really have jumped on teams all season long, and that's the worry is if Philadelphia scores some points in the first half, can Brock Purdy on the road in the playoffs lead a 49ers team from behind. That's the one question, but I do think that the Niners, Kyle Shanahan is going to have some type of uh, tricks up his sleeve to get Debo and George Kittle in some space, Christian McCaffrey in space. And McClays. I'm starting to lean 49ers in this one um, and Brock Purdy. Look, uh, the matchup of these two quarterbacks, Jalen Hurts, Brock Purdy, is lopsided. But when you expand the net and you start looking at the entire offense, I think 
early in the season to the midway point, maybe to the three-quarter pole, I looked at the Eagles and said, this is the best team in the NFC. The Niners, though, have caught them, and I feel like the Niners are much more versatile in the weapons that they have, from, you know, the check the fullback, to Kittle, to Mitchell, to Debo Samuel, to Brandon Ayuk, to uh, Christian McCaffrey. I think the Niners are super dynamic, and they're interesting. When you talk about the Eagles, you're talking about, you know, uh, you know, two or three players. You're talking about A.J. Brown. You're talking about Devonta Smith. And you're talking about Jalen Hurts, who can kill you if you don't account for the quarterback. Now, that's a big thing because the Niners are great up front, and they're especially good with Nick Bosa and Eric Armstead. And, and, uh, and Duck fans will relate to Armstead. It's going to be really interesting to see the front four pass rushers of the Niners and how much time Jalen Hurts gets to find A.J. Brown and you know, get a matchup downfield he likes. So um, I don't think that the tight ends doesn't scare me. The, the, you know, the running backs catching passes down the field don't scare me. The only thing that I'm worried about if I'm a Niner fan, and I am, is Jalen Hurts. Like, he can have some success throwing, but I think if he takes off in certain spots on passing situations and kills you with 25 or 30-yard runs, that's where you get in trouble. And, and maybe I'm haunted by earlier in the year watching Patrick Mahomes do it. Mahomes gave the 49ers fits when they met earlier in the season. It wasn't a close game. Since then, the Niners have been fantastic. But I, I still like San Francisco. I think it's going to be a really good game. I think it's going to be a really close game. But I'd have it like something 27-24, 24-21. It's that kind of game. It's a three-point game. It's going to be a really, really good game, I think, in the, in the morning on Sunday. I want your take. Who do you like and why? You make a case. There's no wrong answer here. All four of these teams are good enough to advance to the Super Bowl, but who's going to get there? 503-417-7575. You weigh in. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm having a lot of fun on this radio show. Yesterday's show flew by. Loved the interview we did with Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers. Uh, Loved the interview with Jerry Allen, voice of the Ducks. Very rarely do you get both those guys in one place. And got text messages after the show from both of them. They're just so classy, those two guys. Both of them, uh, I just told them how much I enjoyed the interview. And they love coming on and uh, talking with you. If you missed that yesterday, it was a real treat. And especially for, I think, somebody who's a young broadcaster, what a phenomenal resource to be able to uh, queue up an interview with Mike Parker or Jerry Allen talking about how you let the game breathe or how they got better with time and broadcasting and reps, like anything else, broadcasting. Hell, I used to go back and listen to the first radio shows I did back in the day. Like, I'm talking like 17 years ago. It was painful, okay? And if you were here for those I owe you uh, a cold beverage and a hug. Uh, but, I look, I probably will look back, uh, you know, upon the shows I'm doing now and go, yeah, I got better, I got better. That's the aim with anything. But I thought the interviews that we did yesterday were dynamite. So if you get a chance, if you didn't hear them live, check out the podcast. You can get the podcast of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show anywhere that you get a podcast. Um, tune in to that. 
Um, the Pac-12 headquarters is on the move. They're moving the studios and the production arm of the conference's network out of downtown San Francisco to the suburbs. This is a good move by the Pac-12. It's going to save millions of dollars. This is terrific. That's what I have to say about that. I'm not going to go much further with it because I actually suspect that the Pac-12 Networks is on the uh, on the chopping block, uh, or I should say up for sale, the auction block. So uh, keep an eye on that. feels to me like Amazon or somebody else may be in line to buy the Pac-12 Networks. And, and my spider senses are tingling. I don't know anything. Nobody said anything. But the fact that the negotiation for the media rights has taken so long and that we we now know that the Pac-12 uh, you know is trying to rectify this 50 million dollar disagreement it's having with Comcast uh, I kinda wonder if the delay has been caused in part by the the audits that have to happen when somebody's coming in to buy something else uh, have you ever worked for a company that got sold like a big company that got sold to another company what you have happen is a bunch of people uh, with notepads and pens show up and they start writing things down. I've been at a number of places that, that got sold or changed hands, and I literally was sitting at a desk one time. Somebody came over, was taking inventory, and said, uh, you know, okay, uh, Dell computer and uh, Apple this, and, uh, you know, you got a phone bank there, and, uh, uh, and, and what do you do? Like, they want, like, who are you and what do you do? And uh, I go... I turn to my coworker and I go, uh, either they're refinancing the company or we are about to be sold. And turns out we were being sold. I think that there may be some of that going on with the Pac-12 network. Keep an eye on that. It's kind of why I don't anticipate Mark Shukin, who was fired as the president of the Pac-12 network last week, I don't anticipate the Pac-12 filling that position until a media rights deal is done or unless and until they find out if they're selling the network. Because if I'm Amazon, I don't want to buy the Pac-12 network and take on your recent hire. I want to hire my own person to run the Pac-12 network. If I'm Amazon and I'm buying it. So keep an eye on that. Uh, other news in the Pac-12 today. Uh, how about Washington State? It has extended head coach Jake Dickert. They've extended Dickert through 2027. Uh, he, uh, five hours ago, tweeted out, said he was, feels blessed and honored to represent Washington State. But Washington State buying in on Jake Dickert, getting some more continuity. I think he's done a good job. I don't think he's done a great job, but I think he's done a good job. Uh, they have extended him through 2027. That it will help him recruit. That will keep him in Pullman. It will, uh, you know, it will make... Uh, it will make the uh, the operation feel like it's got some stability. Now, keep in mind they lost their offensive coordinator, you know, to uh, to who left the program to go be a head coach, uh, and Eric Morris he's gone, and they lost their defensive coordinator who left to go for the same position at Arizona State. So Washington State, who's just been through hell with Nick Rolovich, uh, basically being fired in the middle of last season for not getting vaccinated. Turns to Jake Dickert. He does a pretty good job in getting the program, you know, stable. Um, they win four of the first five games of this last season, including beating uh, a ranked Wisconsin team. And uh, then, uh, you know, didn't do well in the middle part of their season. But, you know, they end up bowl eligible 
and they end up with a winning season, and Jake Dickert gets a contract that now keeps him in Pullman through 2027. There's a uh, one-year extension, basically. He originally signed a five-year contract. Now, part of this, I'm told by an insider, may be that Washington State had a provision in Dickert's contract that gave him another season as long as he made a bowl game. Remember that Mike Riley had a very similar contract at Oregon State. Uh, we called it a lifetime deal. Uh, look, I don't, I don't think anybody should have a lifetime deal. Uh, I, I think it, you lose your edge if you have a lifetime deal. I don't deserve a lifetime deal. Nobody should have a lifetime deal. I, you got to stay hungry, my friend, as they say. But Jake Dicker looks like he gets another year at Washington State. This is a pretty good thing. Now, if you were listening to today's show, Ryan Leaf came on early. Now, Stephen, what takeaway did you have from the Ryan Leaf interview? This is a guy who played in the Pac-12, played in the NFL, had uh, you know a substance abuse problem. He's now talking to college campuses and and uh, you know touring the country, sharing his wisdom. But what was your takeaway from the Ryan Leaf interview? Yeah, he has such good perspective on you know being a highly touted NFL guy and then failing and how he can reach young players as well. I also said thought on the field he was talking about Cameron Ward at Washington State and how he expects a lot more out of him. Um, and that they could almost bring in somebody to compete for that starting job. You know, it, he was one of the big time transfers coming in last season. I thought it was very interesting that he kind of called him out a little bit and uh, said that. But I think it's all it all goes back to the perspective thing. Like he wants guys to succeed and put pressure on people to be the best that they can, and so that's the way he does. It, and I, I respect that. Look, I I love the part of the interview where he talked about you know reaching kids and also telling kids the reality of. You know, who here thinks they're going to play in the NFL? Okay, now, uh, you know, everybody sit down. One person stand up. Like, the reality is that in most college locker rooms, the odds of you getting to the NFL and actually getting on the field uh, aren't as great as probably the kids. Everybody thinks they're going to play in the league. Everybody thinks they're going to be a star. It's just like, you know, AAU basketball teams. Hell, it's, it's anybody. It's human nature. So I think he, he gives them a real realistic look at what it takes to get to the next level and what it takes to excel at the next level. Uh, all right, we're back tomorrow with another great show. I appreciate everybody who makes this program part of their day. I wish you both love and peace in your evening. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time. Have a great night, everybody.